What is up, Conscious Monkeys? So, this is going to be a little bit different than the way that we've done this before. This interview kind of occurred over two different recording sessions. We tried recording one time, and the first time, it was honestly kind of messy. Like, there's a couple of reasons of why it got messy. Number one is that we are talking about very real and and to some people it can be a very dark conversation. So first of all, viewer discretion that we go into like kind of sexual stuff and it's heavy, man. Like the stuff we talk about is heavy. And quite frankly, it's so heavy that I believe that we were experiencing some interference, like call it electrical interference from her, from myself. And what it was doing was, is it actually was kind of crashing the platform that I used to record this stuff. It was crashing her internet and it was getting wild on top of that there were some dogs that were um just getting animated she has dogs but she said that they've never acted so erratic before uh outside of when we were recording so you know take it for what it is whether you want to believe that it's a a byproduct of how deep the conversation we have is take it for what it is with that being said the way that i have decided to set this up is that I will air, and I'm giving you this um, intro right here, uh, and then I'm going to give you the first time we sat down. Uh, uncut, I mean, there's going to be a little bit of snipping because I need to put the two together. I need to put the two times we talked together. But other than that, it's going to essentially be me giving an intro the first time we talked, and then me giving an intermission, and then the second time we talked. So I'll denote those with this little doo-doo-doo-doo-doo <laughs> with that sound. So if you hear that, other than that time, it means that we're going into the next interview, the next break, whatever you want to call it. So with that being said, here's going to be the first one. If you don't want to listen to it, that's totally cool. You can click the link below. I'll put a timestamp as to when the second interview kind of starts, which will be inclusive. I think some things might get like jumbled over. Um, but honestly, like it's, it's kind of a messy conversation because as you'll see in here, it's hard for the brain, I think, to conceptualize like whenever these deep seated traumas occur to it, it's hard to remember the timeline. And hopefully I believe I did the best I could to kind of keep the timeline organized, but I'll let you guys be the judge of that. So without further ado, let's get into the first time that Josephine and I recorded. So without further ado, Welcome, Conscious Monkeys, to another episode of Traveling to Consciousness. I am your host, Clayton Q. Terry. And before we get started, I've got two disclaimers today. Uh, the first one is that my dog is on the premise. Um, she's been walked, she's been fed, so we should be all good. But if there's, if we have to take a break for some reason, she's acting up, uh, she's being fussy, we'll ha- I'll let you know that we're doing a brief intermission. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that, j- that we got this one. Um, The second disclaimer is in our initial meet and greet with Josephine, it sounds like this episode could go to a pretty dark place. So I want everyone to just be warned, be prepared for it. Um, And if that happens, then, you know, it happens and we'll try to find the light at the end of the tunnel. So stick with us. Uh, But with that being said, our guest today has helped people create the life that they want to live through traveling and her travel agency and all that. And I'm sure we'll get to it at some point in the story, but she's traveled the world and traveled the depths of her soul. Conscious monkeys. Welcome to the show. Josephine, Josephine, how are you? Hello. 
<laughs> I love the little disclaimer. <laughs> like, brace yourself. <laughs> brace I just yourself, want people guys. to know what they're getting into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> uh, so, Josephine, one of my favorite questions, as always, is what was the first thing? Maybe it was a parent that first asked you. Maybe it was a teacher. What was the first thing you wanted to be whenever you grew up? I actually wanted to be a singer. So I loved, yeah, I loved Britney Spears. I used to um, perform when I was younger. Like I like I used to live in like a little grove and it's where like there's like um, just a load of houses in a little circle. Um, and my mum used to get everybody in and I'd perform Britney Spears and I'd do a dance and a sing. So yeah, that was what I wanted to be when I was younger. <laughs> you did a lot of Britney Spears imitation? Yeah. Yeah, I loved her. She was my idol. <laughs> what was your favorite song by her? Uh, uh, hit Me One More Time. I don't even know if that's the title, but that one. Uh, yeah, it's like, Hit Me Baby One More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that? <laughs> I'd be interested yeah. to know if that's the actual title. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah, I don't know if that's the title, but <laughs> that's I'm not sure if that title could get a, away with in uh, this day and age either. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so what happened with that? Uh, was there a reason that you um stop pursuing it or like where where did you kind of go with that yeah so you know it's it, it doesn't sound so extreme but I think for me as a child I actually went to my dad and my dad's one of those people who's very kind of like pragmatic very kind of like you need to do you know something serious kind of vibe and he was like really into computers and I think he wanted me to live the life that he never lived and he was just pushing me into computers, computers. And I think I was about eight. And I said to him, oh, dad, I'm going to be a singer. You know, he said to me, what do you want to do? And I was like, you need to start thinking about it now, Josephine. What do you want to do? It's important. I'm like, I want to be a singer. And he was like, a singer? He's like, you can't be a singer. And and just like started saying all of these things that just, just ruined me basically, oh, you know, wow. as a child. Because he was like, have you won any competitions? I was like, no. And he's like, right then it's not realistic you're not going to be a singer and you know it's not it's not a realistic job and I was like okay so that really shattered my confidence and I stopped singing from that point onwards which when I think of it like now I'm like it doesn't seem that bad but obviously as a child it shattered me so yeah I just stopped um I guess then it's you know that authority figure I started to then mold myself to do things that were important and realistic Um, and you're making air quotes as you say that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah quote quote, 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 quote. yeah yeah <laughs> so was this just one conversation you had with your dad or was there multiple where you try to push back and he was just like no or uh, I think the dynamic between my dad which I think is a common dynamic for for a lot of people was I really wanted to impress him so it's like anything he wanted me to do I wanted to to you know, be him to be proud of me. So it was kind of like, you know, he was really into gaming. So then I started gaming because I was like, oh, this is going to connect me and my dad. And obviously I think it's cool that my dad's a gamer and I learned how to be a gamer because of my dad. Um, and that was cool. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it, it wasn't really as much as a pushback. It was just me trying to impress him. So that was more the vibe. You felt like you were trying to like validate him a little bit more, mm. please the parental figure as opposed to following... I guess what yeah. you wanted to do. Yeah, because I just didn't feel confident, I guess, you know. So I think you think as well, parents know best. Obviously, like in hindsight, I'm like, oh, 
really shouldn't have. I mean, later down the line, I did actually put my dad in his place. Um, and I did say to him, you know, you're not living the life I want to live, Dad, so I'm not going to take advice from you anymore. <laughs> I did I mean, say that later in later in life. I mean, good for you. Uh, yeah. Let's. Well, I guess we'll get to that at some point. Let's try to keep it back at the intro, right? Where it's, yeah. you know, yeah. you're like, I want to be a singer. I'm, you know, dead set on singing. Were you kind of doing this like in your basement? Were you dancing around singing? Or was there like a point where... Like it was, did it kind of like blindside your dad? Oh, we, so my dad didn't actually live with us, um, but I would be singing everywhere. So we used to, there used to be a few children in the Grove and we used to all like pretend we were like girls aloud and we'd sing right in the middle of the, the street kind of vibe. And like, we didn't care, you know, as children, you just don't care about stuff like that, do you? Like we weren't scared wasn't you know afraid to sing out loud um in the back garden we yeah we'd just always be doing it be everywhere every any opportunity (laughs) so you were just having fun doing it and so to you it was a sign of play and you were just like if i yeah if i just love doing this i'm just gonna do it and yeah see what happens exactly just that innocence that innocence of like oh this is fun i love it you know and just just doing that so yeah 100 was play have you sung at all during or since then? I always sing. I always sing in the shower. I always sing. I actually did a business mastermind last year. And on that, on the like one of the retreats, one of the um, things that they wanted us to do was express ourselves. So I decided to sing because I was like, this is a really great opportunity for me to really push that limit, you know, that comfort zone. Um, and I did sing in front of like all of these people and like, I mean, full on trauma release. It felt like I cried and everything before it like broke down. Like it was, it was, it was powerful, but yeah, I, I do sing just not publicly. <laughs> it's not, you don't press record, jump into the microphone. <laughs> no, no, I should. Yeah, I mean, I should. I'd encourage it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then. I'm interested to hear about this retreat and all that, but it sounds like something that's further down in the story. So if we reel it back a little, um, your dad, so we're at the point where your dad is like, okay, you want to be a singer? You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a singer. What are you talking about? And he starts instilling this, let's say negativity or mm. negativity is probably the best word for it. Pessimism into that dream. And then did that force you where, what route did that force you into? Uh, I guess it it definitely did. So my dad was very, you know, adamant on doing computers. Computers are the future. He studied, like he did computer. He never went to like uni or anything, but like my auntie, his sister was a software engineer. He built computers. So he was like more into like hardware, but I think he always wanted to have been a programmer. Um, so it did. I started to pick computers then. Um, I started to pick computers, but I would also pick art because there was this part of me that was so creative and expressive, you know, that always has been there. Um, And I think I just started to then bring myself into like the practicality because art's not a real job or, you know, singing's not a real job. So all of those creative kind of elements to me were being suppressed because it was like, you need to do computers. So I started to pick IT and I loved IT. I loved, I loved computers, but I did pick computers then whenever I was able to, um, and I did it all the way up into the unit. So, so I'm curious about, 
you did a thing there where you said that art and creative stuff wasn't something that you could get paid for. Was that something that your dad might have also instilled in you? Like, did he ever say, okay, art things you don't get paid for? It's this logical stuff, it's this computer logic where you get the money? I, I think I, I can't remember exactly if it was my dad. I'm sure he probably did say that those kind of things you can't make money in. I did hear that from, I feel like that was an influence that conditioned me a lot because I definitely did not think that you can make money from art and music unless you became a celebrity, you know, like a famous singer um, or a famous artist. Or I think even I'm only going to be a famous artist if I die, you know, like that's because oh, wow. that's, yeah. So a lot of those kind of programs that made me not go towards them um, ever really. So, yeah. You feel like that's what kept you away from going to it? Probably, yeah. Probably. Yeah, def- well, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So, so then you went to college for, what was it, computer engineering? I did um, computer science in university. So I know okay. it, I don't know if it's called university in, in, in the States, but yeah, computer science. So I felt like a real nerd, you know, and I strolled into uni like obviously my class of computer science was nerds you know like the proper nerds you know that was sitting there gaming i was a i don't know if we talked about this in the meeting group but i was a computer engineer as well so i Ah. I know the type (laughs) yeah you know the type and i showed in there like full face of makeup like pretty fashionable and nobody would come near me i'm not surprised no yeah no one no one came near me i mean we could we can get to that but yeah they were intimidated if i was gonna be honest they were that that was the crux of it (laughs) What, do you want to, <laughs> you, you said something that you wanted to, if we want to get into it. So I'd, I'd love to get into it. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so my, obviously I felt uncomfortable because I felt like I didn't fit in, in university. Um, maybe my soul just knew that, you know, it was like, this is not the place for you kind of vibe. Um, but yeah, nobody would sit near me and it was only say like three or six months in. I actually had come, like, became friends with a few of the people, and I asked them, "Why did you never sit?" Because I would literally sit in the middle of a row, and no one would, no one would come on it. Literally, everyone. It was like I was like, "Do I smile? Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Do I give off this vibe that's like not welcoming?" <laughs> um, but yeah, they did. They did tell me that I was um, intimidating. Like, they just, you know, they yeah. didn't. I wasn't approachable. I wasn't. Yeah, they were intimidated by me. Did you ever ask them what it was that intimidated them? Uh, yeah, like, you know, some of the guys were like, you know, you're just like a very kind of attractive girl and, you know, it's like not what we're used to. And um, it's it's like they kind of judged me, you know, they didn't think that I would be into those things that they were into. I mean, I then ended up playing like games with them and we used to get on Skype and game together. And I think they just judged a book by its cover. I think that's what it was. I mean, that's certainly something, but I think we all can be, you know, we're all guilty like of it at some point in time. 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So then how did college go? You made some friends. Are you enjoying computer engineering or was there this feeling that it wasn't all it was meant to be? I really struggled, to be honest. And it wasn't that I didn't feel capable, but if I'm honest, I just didn't like 
I didn't feel like I was academic. Like I could have been if I forced myself to be. Um, but I guess like I am quite strong-minded and I started to realize like, this is not how I'm going to live for the next 50, 60 years. Like, you know, started to get those kind of like internal messages of like, surely I don't want to do this. <laughs> it's boring. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Because it was very naive why I picked computer science anyway. Like I was like, oh, I'll just be a game programmer because I love playing games, you know? And then it's like, game programming is like the hardest programming that you can do (laughs) like it's not that fun to program like it's just not and I was always wanting to do the design so I really loved web design and where I could actually be creative and choose colors and and stuff like that so I you know I was enjoying that part of it but then all of the programming stuff I was like god no this is so boring and also at that time like that age so maybe I was like 18 that was when I was like probably my most depressed I'd say but like living this living this like double life of like I have to show up and I'm depressed but I don't really know you know I'm like I don't understand that I'm depressed so I'm just like showing up and smiling and being in these social situations but inside I feel you know terrible and anxious and upset and so there was like this really kind of contrasting vibe going on but it definitely affected me in university because I sometimes wouldn't get out of bed I wouldn't go so a lot of the times I was falling behind because like I said I was like really depressed and it's like trying to I'm like what's wrong with me why can't I just get up and go to uni you know it's like a lot of that and then I'd feel worse about myself because then I'd be behind and yeah so a lot of that was coming to the surface I think when I was 18 like I was starting to like have this harsh reality of like wow I've got to be a responsible adult obviously never been parented to the like I didn't have those skills <laughs> I've not had the functional you know the functional life where I've got two parents that have taught me the skills that you're going to need when you become an adult so that started to hit me big time when I was 18 um so yeah so I you really something interesting you said there was that you were depressed but didn't realize you were depressed yeah well, yeah are you able to expand a little bit more on that yeah so I probably around 14 I went on to um like antidepressants so I I started taking medication medication for for mental health um and it's because I was starting to like self-harm when I was that age so I'd say between the ages of like 14 and 18 I was obviously suffering with lots of mental health but I didn't quite understand it who does at that you know at that age I don't think you can understand it um so yeah I think it's you know still trying to show up in a normal world where you don't have much understanding and the only understanding I've got is going to a doctor and them giving me medication and then coming home and trying to live in in a world where it's like no one else is doing this and you know like it's just like you just got to show up like that's just what you've got to do kind of thing so yeah, a lot, a lot of like that energy where it's like I was a bit lost. I'd say I'm just trying to get on with it. <laughs> I I thought it was going to be my dog that started barking. <laughs> yeah, uh, but something you said that was interesting, and this is something that I've seen myself whenever like looking back on things, is like in that in between age when you were saying you were 14, and you know you. I guess because you sounds like you didn't understand you were depressed until you were 18 
yet the outside world, you know, doctors, maybe your parents subconsciously, the medication you're being prescribed was all saying, okay, you're depressed. But I guess you never made that correlation in your mind that you were depressed. Mm, yeah, I think it's like, you know, you're not thinking of depression as a as a root problem. You're thinking of it, you're thinking in the terms of like symptoms. So you're like, you go to the doctors with this idea of like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And then they say, oh, okay, it sounds like this. Here you go. And then I guess you don't go deeper than that. You know, it's, it's it still stays on that level and there's no inquiry, you know, there's no like, there's no introspection. You're just kind of like, oh, when is this going to go away kind of thing? <laughs> like, how do we, you know, how do we move past this? Um, and then, yeah, obviously you don't, you, you don't move past it if you just keep taking medication. I don't think, you know, it's, it's like take something awful to, in my experience, it just always took something extreme for, for me to even be noticed and like seen and, and heard it's like I had to go to extreme measures to be like like a cry for help you know to be like when is this going to stop like you know like that kind of extreme energy so yeah I think that that's why because I mean my mum didn't my mum was depressed herself she didn't understand she was doing the same thing as me going to the doctors getting prescriptions <laughs> so just getting medication yeah heavily heavily do you feel like it was kind of just covering up what like was going on yeah like very numbing you know and I, I mean I don't disclaimer I'm not a medical doctor and I don't think anyone should just do this but only only when I stopped medication was I able to feel and I, I mean you you already know the saying like you've got to feel to heal and um that was when I was ready. Obviously, there'd been plenty of times when I'd stopped the medication and I'd relapsed, and that's obviously not good. That was, you know, d dangerous for my health. But um, there was a lot. That there was a time when I just drew a line, and I was like, I can't, I can't feel this norm anymore. Like it was great that the, the metazapine made me norm. It was fantastic because I didn't <laughs> feel anything. It was great in in those times when I'm extremely all over the show you know and I'm feeling suicidal and I don't want to feel those feelings anymore of sadness and hopelessness but it's not healthy it's not it's not sustainable it doesn't actually help it's almost like treating a what is it treating a wound that needs stitches with a band-aid yeah it's not yeah, getting to the root of the issue it. never ne it never is and so there's a couple things you said that I found interesting the one of them, which open, you know, as open as you are willing to go with it, you said there was things that you, I forget the exact phrasing, but you said you were calling out or you were doing drastic things to get attention along those lines. Mm. Do you remember mm. what the first thing would have been and when it kind of would have occurred that you were trying to get this attention? I definitely think that. I definitely think my behavior in general was quite impulsive and extreme. So like I was definitely an alcoholic. I was definitely drinking way too much, but didn't think that it was bad because loads of people were doing it. What age um, would this I'd have been? Started, oh, like 14, 15. Um, and then I did take a lot of drugs when I was like at 17, I started taking a lot of drugs. 
So again, it was it was covered up by, you know, everyone's doing it. You know, all my friends are doing it. Um, but the extreme that I would take it to, I'd get myself in really bad situations or I was very impulsive. Like I'm a very impulsive person. So when you've got drugs and alcohol mixed into the into the equation with with being impulsive and pretty reckless, it's you know, it's dangerous. Um Gosh, those dogs! <laughs> I know. Some dogs and I just, think it's. Just... I think it's so. It's, it's so funny. I thought I was going to be the one <laughs> with the, the trouble. With the, sorry, guys. It's me it, with the dogs. <laughs> it's. It's no. I think it's funny because all day I was like, "All right, I got to make sure I walk off her, take off her out, and get her at the right time." And then you know, <laughs> your dogs are barking. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they they bark at anyone that walks past. It's crazy. Oh, just, man. I don't know why they just do. Um, but yeah. Anyway. That's, I think, my behavior in general. But I think for me, the biggest kind of like screams for help came when I like tried to take my own life because I'd obviously hit rock bottom and that legit felt like the only, I didn't want to be here. Like I just didn't like it. I didn't, I didn't like life. I, there was no happiness. It was like I was very low vibrational, you know? I mean, like, on the scale of consciousness, I probably was at the bottom um, because I had no desire to be here anymore. It's like, to me, not being here was the best, the best opportunity. <laughs> it's like I actually fantasized. I, I do think I had like the, you know, the suicidal ideation. It's like whenever I thought about it, it made me, obviously gave me some kind of chemical reaction, um, which I started to become a bit addicted to, I think. But that was the first time that, people actually noticed me like as in when I say noticed it's when they took me serious as in like you know okay she's she's struggling here and I was just shocked that it took me to try and kill myself for to be to be heard to be seen I was just like how it's yeah it seems crazy I mean we certainly don't live in a normal world by any stretch of the imagination Oh, did we lose her? <laughs> I think we lost her, guys. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're back. Dealt with some mechanical issues here on our side of things. Might have been some negative energy trying to pull us down. We were knocking on their doorstep at right when we got cut off. Uh, so hopefully that didn't change the mood too much, but... I guess I'm gonna have to edit a little bit back there, but let's see what we can get into. Um, Josephine, we were just talking about how it took you getting to this place of feeling like you were not being heard, like nobody was listening to you. Um, if we do a quick overview, you know, it sounds like you, you, in life, you wanted to be a singer. And then you were kind of pushed towards getting into computer engineering. And it sounds like in between there, uh, you start going on medication. I, I believe we heard that like drugs were becoming a thing and you started just falling down the rabbit hole in a negative fashion. Maybe we could start by rewinding a bit because let's put this in context a little something that you mentioned before was that you were drinking and drinking as about as much as everyone else. Now in the United States where I'm from and I'm, I believe majority of the listeners are from alcohol. Isn't 
like prevalent, I guess, until you hit the age of 21, you're not allowed. Yeah. But you grew up in yeah. Europe somewhere? Yeah, in the UK. In the UK, where drinking's probably yeah. a little bit more frequent. Well, I think that the teenagers would just would be drinking. And I guess like the place that I'm from is like it's it's pretty low vibrational. As in there's a lot of like you know, people who are just on benefits, um, people who have like very low vibrational, I'd say, you know, there's lots of crime, lots of, you know, parents that are just I'd say dysfunctional. Um, there's not a good energy there. So I think that that also, like, we see loads of our parents drinking and and partying, and then it's like that's just what we think is good to do. Um, we think it's normal <laughs> in the UK to be drinking at, at that age, <laughs> like all of the kids in the parks. <laughs> just culturally accepted. Yeah, yeah, it's the norm. <laughs> and so, so then you're drinking a little bit. Was the medication that you got put on, was that getting supplemented with the uh, drinking as well? Yeah, yeah. I I would, I just had no concept of how that would be damaging to me. And actually, when you were just re- re-saying though that overview back to me, I was like, oh, we've missed out quite, quite a few chunks of like, why was I depressed at 14? Why was I self-harming at 14? <laughs> why did I feel all of those ways? And, you know, like I did experience um, some some traumatic things. It's not just that I just woke up one day, you know, self-harmed. Um, I think that was my response to the depression and, and all of that. That was my response to the traumatic events that had happened. Um, and as well, like my parenting was not, not the most ideal. I, I lived in quite toxic environments. Um, so yeah, just to add some context there, because it just sounds like I've gone from being this happy child to this depressed person <laughs> with no reason. So maybe it was good we had a second to step back. <laughs> yeah, good. yeah, it was. Jump down the rabbit hole real fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Her dad said she wasn't allowed to sing, and then she ended up trying to kill herself. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, she's dramatic. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you... And again, if you feel like these are questions that are going to push you a little too far, feel free to, you know, be vague if you'd like. What were some traumatic events that I'm assuming would have occurred between, you know, that singing, that passion for singing, and then by the Mm. age of 14? Yeah, so um, I'd say that around, I was bullied a lot as well. It's probably a good point to to add. I I was bullied a lot for the way that I looked. Um, so, I mean, I, I think this is a very vital bit of information because on top of the bullying and feeling not included and very rejected by society, um, when I was around 11, um, me and my little sister discovered that we were both being abused by our stepfather. Um, just to add another layer to that, this is also the guy that had been our father um, he'd look after us. He was, I mean, he was a better father to us than my actual dad. <laughs> like at the time he was, you know, he cooked for us, he cleaned for us. Um, he was the only parent figure um, that we had because my mom was in bed a lot. So she was like severely depressed, obviously had all of her own issues going on. 
Um, so she wasn't able to look after us. So it's like we had a very emotionally vacant mum and a mum that wasn't nurturing us and a mum that didn't do, you know, quote unquote, the normal mum stuff. Um, so so our stepdad was our only parent figure. Um, he would he would literally look after us so much. Um, but in the same time, he was um, abusing us sexually. Sorry, I should mention that as well. Not not necessarily physically, but um, he. Um, so me and my sister discovered that when we were when when she was nine and I was eleven, and I think one of the one of the most traumatic things was us building up the courage to tell our mom, and thinking I guess thinking that our mom was going to protect us. And that, you know, that was, you know, that was the, the bravest thing to do. Um, and what happened was our mum actually, she actually let him back in to the house like two weeks later. And then we had to, we had to start living as if none of that had happened. And we had to, I mean, at the time we, we told the police that we were lying because we'd been emotionally blackmailed into like, you don't want him to go to prison. What if he goes to prison? He's going to get beat up. And we were like, oh, you know, we don't want that, you know, because we loved him. He was still like, he was like the person who'd been looking after us. And I guess like at that age, he's so naive. Like you just don't know. You don't know these things, do you? So we were just like, I guess, didn't realise the impact that would have on us. Um. So, yeah, obviously that is severely traumatic. <laughs> as a child like that's that's quite a lot to then live with somebody who's abused you and be terrified um but also to for me it was the rigid it was the my mum how she'd neglected us that that hit me hard um so, yeah, so two questions that come to mind is number one was your stepfather the one who pushed you towards computers or was that your that was your actual dad that was my actual dad okay that was your actual yeah. dad and then the other yeah. question was, is you said twice that you discovered you were being abused. What, like, I, I guess I, I understand what you're saying from a, an extent, right? Like, you know, kids have this euphoric, everything's possible idea of the world and everything's beautiful in a sense. Mm. And I'm curious as to how, I guess that it it came across to you as I, I'm struggling for words, but almost like that you weren't that there was a time where this was happening and it wasn't abuse; it just was. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was normal. Yeah, because yeah, you were like yeah, you because it was it was it was like what's the right word to use? Cocova is that is that the right word? Where it's like. Under, covert I, i'm not sure if that's yeah it was kind of like it was secretly being done even to to us you know it's like it was it wasn't intrusive it wasn't um attacking it wasn't like pinning us down it was very kind of like he would touch us in obviously inappropriate areas and almost pass it off as if that was normal so then it was more uncomfortable because it would be we would just be sit there watching TV and he would do it, but in a way that felt very, like it wasn't like he, you know, it's not like a obvious thing. 
but obviously it felt very uncomfortable and it was felt wrong you know as as, as wrong as it can feel as, as a child when you don't really understand those things um so yeah and I, I honestly don't know what pushed me and my sister my sister was nine I, you know it's like I think that we we cried our eyes out we obviously knew it wasn't right um and we just held each other and, and just cried our eyes out for for ages, you know, because we were just like, you know, is this happening to you? And it's like, yeah. And then, yeah, we just embraced each other because we we didn't know, you know. It's just like you just don't know those things. So, yeah, it's um, it was that. It was very kind of like under the radar. But even if from his perspective, I think that he was trying to pass it off as if it was normal. So that was more conflicting for us because we were like, is it, you know, like what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> a bit intense. You're sitting there like, this feels wrong, but he's acting like it's normal. So you, yeah. you, know, you get like this mix of feedback somehow, like this disgruntling mm, of a sort. Exactly. Yeah, it just felt, it felt uncomfortable to be touched, you know, in those areas by my stepdad. It felt uncomfortable, but there was no yeah it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't weird from his perspective like he didn't act as if that was weird what he was doing so then that was that was challenging yeah and in a weird way you know it's i guess it's gosh i can't believe i'm about to say that but it's a i guess a good thing (laughs) that you had your sister that you're able to share these ideas with was there ever oh god yeah was there ever an inkling to share these with other friends and see if they had experienced similar things? No, no, there wasn't. Um, no, absolutely not. Just, just my sister. And I guess like, so he has a lot of children, like 11 or something like that. Wow. We, um, yeah. And one of those was my little brother and my little brother um god bless his soul he is um he was his actual son so that was really challenging for us to be in that in that dynamic as well with because yeah we just you know like are we gonna tell him like you know he's he's younger than us and we actually did kind of like agree not to tell him but then my mum went and told him anyway at 12 years of age which must have been so shattering for him and he didn't believe us he didn't he didn't want to believe that his dad had been doing that to his sisters um i think that messed him up big time you know that that must have messed him up big time to like lose his dad and then also find out that so no we didn't necessarily go and tell other people because we already had to tell his other 11 kids and they did not treat us very well um you know they didn't believe us so they just they just rained down on us like all of this abuse you know we're liars we're attention seekers we're you know like I mean it doesn't get much worse than what we went through me and my little sister because we told the police the first time it came out we told the police we told our mom we thought oh my god like we're relieved we're, we're gonna you know this is gonna be resolved and then within two weeks he was back in we were told that we have to tell the police we were lying and attention seeking we had to tell all the all of the kids that had just abused us, you know, that that we were lying, and um, and then we had to just get on with life. And that's so. 
so there's a quite a few things here that you just laid out and I've kind of lost track with whenever all this happened, right? There's you telling your mom there's, and I'm proposing this back to you. So you're able to kind of set the timeline for me. Mm-hmm. There's you telling your mom, well, I guess there's it happening. There's then you talking to your sister. There's you telling your mom, there's you telling police, there's you mm-hmm. telling your, um, other somewhat siblings, the other 11 kids, and then you having to go back through and say that you're lying to all those people. Are you able Mm -hmm. to kind of structure the timeline a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think me and my sister had the conversation and then within the 24 hours we went and told my mom, this was when I was 11 and my sister was nine. Um, And then from that point we rang the police straight away and then the police came and they obviously took statements in that time. That's when everybody else found out and because he'd obviously moved out as well. And then I'd say it was about two weeks after that, mum started disappearing and like sneaking out of the house and stuff. And we was like, what's she doing? And, you know, mum never leaves the house. Mum never is out of bed. What's she doing? And then we discovered that she'd been going and visiting um, our stepdad. And then... Yeah, and then he moved back in. And so so then it was all like, I'd say it was within a month of us it coming out, was telling the police and all of that. And then within a month, it was like, right, okay, now you're going to tell everyone that you were lying and that you're attention seeking and he's going to come back and we're all going to play happy families. Um, wow. So, yeah. Was it your mom who pressured you to, like, say that you were lying? She She did say to us that, you know, like, if, he goes to jail he's going to get beat up and you know do we want that um and you know my mum my mum's experienced a lot of trauma in her life as well and it was the same dynamic she was abused and she you know she's she's had the same dynamic as well where she was told to you know lie um and I think for her it was probably felt normal probably felt you know I don't I don't judge her or blame her for anything um but you know, she—I think she was probably just shocked as well. My mum's not; she's not very grown up in her mind. You know, she's trapped in a, a young, traumatized girl body. I always like uh, Rick and Morty. It's they—they're taught. There's a scene or an episode where Morty, who's the kid—I'm not sure how familiar you are—but yeah, I know. Rick yeah, and, and and where he um, has the Gazorpazorp kid, like this kid ages within a day to become like a teenager and. He's like, Dad, I'm so confused. And he's like, you know, parents are just kids having kids. And yeah, I think that's so the craziest thing about it, right? Mm. And it sounds, it's, yeah. Yeah. Mm. And so I, so, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so like that, that was obviously very traumatic for, for me. That's like what I think that kind of dynamic was probably what started to trigger those feelings of like, because at eleven, sure. learning that my mom, my mom, who was my my protector and you know my everything, wasn't there to protect me anymore. That I think that started a lot of like for me internal noise of like, I was so confused, you know, so let down, so confused, just yeah, didn't feel protected. And I mean, talk about not being able to speak your truth, like you were, mm. and maybe that's something mm. to still touch on. Is it was it? It sounds like it wasn't very overt whenever you were told to lie, but it was kind of more just suggested 
to redact your statements or to say that you're making it up? Yeah. So, I mean, often to, to tell the police that you're lying and that you were attention seeking, that's so invalidating for us. It's like, what? So it's just not real? It's, that's not, that's Might have been traumatizing in its own, bad. right? So traumatizing. <laughs> I think my sister actually, like, bless her. So it actually happened to her again. And that was like the final straw when he got kicked out and he never came back. Um, but what happened to me in that time was I then also was like, I think it was like two years later, then I was raped by my friend's big brother. And that was, that. I guess like at that point, I'd, I'd become so um, desensitized to if something was wrong, because I was like, well, even if something is wrong, no one's going to believe me. No one's gonna. No one's gonna validate that. And I had to. That's the then. That's when I started self harming. So to give the timeline, that was when you know fourteen. Wow. I started self harming, and that I I had no explanation for why I was self harming. But obviously now I can see that it was because of all of that trapped emotion and trapped feelings and not being able to 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 speak my truth and yeah, just all of that dysfunction. I mean, it's a, lot, it's a lot of dysfunction. It's a lot of trauma in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. And I think that's then what that created the grounds for my years of depression and anxiety and identity, just not knowing who I am and feeling lost and not trusting the world. And yeah, just relationships being so dysfunctional and just everything. I mean, if, if you learn those things as a child, you you're pretty screwed. It's it's ingrained. <laughs> got some challenges ahead. You gotta you gotta rewrite that subconscious brain. It's a yeah. tricky one. It doesn't yeah. always want to listen either. Mm, no, it doesn't. And so, do you? So this incident where with your friend's brother was that that would have been before you were fourteen. Yeah, yeah, that was before I was fourteen, and nobody believed me. Again, nobody. Um, there was girls who knew it was true, but their parents had told them to stay quiet and not get involved. Um, so it's, it just felt like that nightmare all over again, where like, no one's going to hear me now, that like, no one's going to validate what I've been through. And I mean, as a child, I wouldn't have been aware of that, but I just had to get on with it. If actually I had to move school because the amount of abuse I got verbally and um, threatened like I got friends would be beaten up because I was spreading lies and I mean it was it was awful it was for me as a child I think it was awful um but yeah just that rejection that rejection when I'm going through these things that was I, I just can't you can't process that you just you just can't process that I mean it's hard to process even now I mean and even just sitting across from you, I mean, it's <laughs> it's a lot for me. And to imagine it's it's you, you know. Mm. And so, but it's made me who I am. So it's it's beautiful in a way. It's 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 so beautiful. But obviously, when you when you come from it from that perspective, it sounds quite dark and deep and like, oh my god. <laughs> but it's um, been beautiful. You, it's been a beautiful blessing. My favorite uh, quote. Is a Carl Jung quote. It's that no tree can reach its leaves into heaven without its roots reaching down to hell. Yeah, it's actually it's a good one. And so, if we jump back a little bit, you were saying that in school, mm. they were saying that you were a liar or that you were lying. 
what mm. I mean, point blank, I guess, were you or were they making up things that you were lying about or what was that all of, what was I that think, whole thing? I think it was just his sister was in my, was in my age. Who, whose sister? So she did the guy that had done oh, okay. it. So she just didn't want to accept that her brother had done that. You know, of course she wouldn't. Who, who would want her to feel like that was true? No one. And then she was popular. She was a popular girl. So she, you know, nobody wanted to go against her either. You know, everyone was like, you know, I wasn't as popular as her. So everybody just didn't want to fall out with her. So everyone was like, yeah, we're going to team up with her. Yeah, you're a liar. It's, you know, it's not true. And yeah. Wow. And it sounds like it just kind of re-cemented those nobody listens to me and just kind of the distancing in a sense. Yeah, I guess it's like it just, I was never able to, um, you know, if, if people had have considered it was true, then maybe I would have been able to express, like maybe I would have been seen or heard or I would have been, I mean, I did, I did go to um, a counsellor, like a, a counsellor who helped me, I spoke through things like speaking for repair. Um, so I did kind of get a little bit of help at that time. Um but yeah, then then that like, I don't know. Like I just didn't think that that helped me that much because it never really gets to the root of things. Because it's just like you tell them what's happened and tell them how you feel, and then and then that's it. I mean, and that's fourteen. And it seems like almost an extension of the whole medical situation where it's just you know just these patches. You know, it's just like hey, like you know, here's how I feel, and they are looking at a checklist of okay, well, we'll prescribe you this if you check all these boxes, kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um, I actually remember they would just constantly be saying, like, we'll get you to see a psychologist. And I think I remember at the time being able to see a psychologist was like the, if I get to see a psychologist, this is going to help me so much, kind of, you know? And I was like, just one day, and then it's like it never happened until I tried to cut myself. So, you know, it was like I was waiting and waiting, and I was on waiting lists, and you'll get to see one soon. And it was never urgent. It was never like you know. It was never like what you're going through is is valid enough to be seen by a psychologist. Um, so that's what I was saying before about I was only seen when I'd went to the extreme measures of trying to kill myself. That was only the time when people were like, oh, <laughs> oh, this is serious. She's actually struggling. Um, and then even that experience, oh god, it was it was awful because I went into the hospital and they sent me home after like four days and I mean of course I went back into my own little uni apartment and then I was alone and I tried to do it again well okay we did I think we just covered a lot of things right there so let's unpack all this because that was that was wild um (laughs) interesting I guess is a better (laughs) word for it so you were like on a waiting list then to get oh who lost her again (laughs) okay so i know that was chaotic and crazy if you guys listen to that first of all thank you so much that's pretty dope uh that's pretty dope that you're willing to push through that so now we're gonna move into the second time that josephine and i sat down and 
yeah, we're just, I, it's kind of a bizarre start because I already knew where I wanted to take the interview, which I normally don't know. So it's, it's kind of rough at the beginning, but then we kind of get into it. It hits its stride and it starts moving along. So I really don't have much to add here. Just that this was the intermission in between us recording. Uh, so, you know, about a month or two was in between this for so many various reasons. The earth and world just kept pushing us back, but here it is. Um, the full interview, uh, the second part of it with Josephine. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of traveling to consciousness. I am your host, Clayton Q. Terry on today's show. We are trying again for round two with our guest. We tried a little while back, but the energy of the conversation was getting the dogs and both of our setups all wound up and (laughs) the recording software was crashing. And you may ask, be asking yourself, like, why would that happen? Um, Well, Josephine and I are diving into a very real, very deep, and depending on how you view it, a very dark conversation. Um, She's had a very unique path to get where she is today to join us for this conversation. So Conscious Monkeys, welcome to the show, Josephine Malali. Josephine, thanks for being here. Hi. Again, round two. Again, round two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get it figured out this time. <laughs> this is the one. Keep the energy this is, clear. This is the one. <laughs> Deep breaths if, if needs be. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a break if uh, yeah the internet starts yeah. acting up again. Um. So, yeah, so I, I guess the, let's try to keep it consistent, right? So like, what was the first thing that you wanted to be whenever you grew up? Yes, I wanted to be a singer, a singer. I wanted to be specifically Britney Spears. Um, but yeah, if you would have asked me a singer, that's all I did when I was younger. Just a lot of singing, dancing around. Singing, dancing. Yeah. Was it yeah, kind of like a lot expressing of expressing myself? Was there a lot of imitation of Britney? Yeah, yeah. Hit me one more time. Was that was my weekly performance? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man, that's funny. That's cool. And so then, mm. did, where did you like pursue this passion at all? Did you um, make any music videos, or <laughs> what was the extent? No. So I, me, and. The, the other kids there was a few there was a few of us we would like sing a lot um but when I was like eight my dad was just like put you know the whole reality check on me and was like you know what do you want to be obviously from a place of care but he was starting to kind of like program me to be ready to for the real world air quotes, quote, air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you're making air quotes <laughs> yeah yeah um, and it was very kind of like, okay, what are you going to do as like your real job? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be a singer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Of course. <laughs> it's already yeah, decided. yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be a singer. And he's like, no, like, absolutely not. Like, that's not realistic. You're not going to be a singer. Um, and just came crashing down on those dreams, I guess. And it doesn't sound crazy now. Like it sounds quite like, like when I look at it now, I'm like, can see it from like a rational, reasonable view. But then it was devastating. I just couldn't believe that he 
I, I don't know, like I, I just, it was my first experience of having kind of like a, something crashing down on my reality, like me as a child being in a bubble, you know, as a child, it's like you're very imaginative. Nothing is stopping you. You, you can do anything. You can take on the world. And that was like my first, I guess, real like traumatic experience of someone just popping a bubble and being like, you know, like conditioning me. And it's like, oh, so no, that that quickly ended. The dream quickly ended there. That was it. No more singing from that point. That's wild. I really like how you describe that of, you know, like when you're a kid, like everything's possible, anything's possible. Mm. And it was just kind of like this bubble that popped. It sounds like you yeah. put your dad in like really high regards with, you know, with regards to like approval. I mean, and I assume most people do, but just that's what it sounds like. Yeah, a, a lot. I, everything. I think more so than my mom. I don't know why, um, but everything that I've done is always like wanting my dad to be proud of me. So, yeah. Did you... Did your mom say anything about this? Did you bring this up to her of what you wanted to do? Mom was, mom was more encouraging, actually. Mom was like, you can do anything you want. What, maybe too passive? <laughs> mom was, yeah, you can do anything you want. I don't know how invested she was into that, you know? It's just like, yeah, you can <laughs> you can do it. It's like, okay. But yeah, no, she um very passive, so very mild and passive it's not like go on go do it it's very like do whatever you want <laughs> just like the world's your oyster kind of thing you can do whatever you yeah. want yeah and yeah. and so and so then whenever you're like okay you can't be a quote-unquote can't be a singer um what was the next thing that kind of popped into your head well it was what dad suggested which was computers um I think my dad grew up in a time where, you know, like you had to work hard and you had to provide for your family and, you know, he obviously struggled. So for him, it was like he wanted me to have the best opportunities and, I mean, we'll get there. But later on in life, he explained all of it to me. So, um, yeah, he just was like, you need to do computers. That's the future. Um, you know, he built computers his sister was a software engineer, my aunt. Um, so it was very kind of like, that's where the money is. That's where you're going to be supported. That's where you're going to have a stable, secure income. That's where you need to go. So then that's that's what I did, computers. <laughs> At the age of eight? <laughs> well, that was like what I started playing computer games. Uh, um, so that's how it started. You know, I started getting an interest for computer games and being on a computer a lot and yeah so then the opportunity you know as you go through school like picking computers that was the that was the choice it was just yeah absorb as much computer information as you can and dive into yeah. that yeah well I, from eight i was starting to think that that's what i was going to do so it was like i was preparing myself for that okay and then um I guess as a parallel, as we're kind of going through this, I know that you're like into spirituality and consciousness. Did you have any, like, were there any talks with your parents or uh, mom, dad about the nature of being and, you know, what all is happening? No, no, not really. And, you know, it's like my parents, so as a lot of parents are not parents that have like done the work, 
gone inwards, become very conscious, you know, so it's not, it's not that energy really. Gotcha. It wasn't like a part of the conversations. No. And so then, um, I, I, I guess I'm having a little bit of difficulty since we kind of talked about this before, but I remember at some point, probably around eight or 11, did your parents, they separated and then did your mom remarry? No, so my my dad actually moved. My dad left when he, when I was three. When you were three. So, yeah. So da- my dad left when I was three, and my stepdad came in around the same time. I think or like four. So it was like dad went out, stepdad came in pretty like pretty soon oh, wow. after that, and then he he was my dad. So like he brought me up, taught me the alphabet, and you know all of those things. And that's your, you're saying your stepdad, it was your dad, was your quote unquote dad? No. So like not, so not the dad that told me to do computers. <laughs> that's oh, like okay. a real that biological was... father. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But yeah. But stepdad was like the father figure more so. Cause my, my real dad was pretty like, like flaky. Like he just wasn't consistent wouldn't always pick us up he was supposed to get us it like every Sunday sometimes wouldn't show up so it was a bit like wasn't a huge part of our lives growing up I gotcha yeah he was kind of in and out let's say Mm, mm. and so uh, I I, I'm not sure why I'm blanking I feel like there's a block here of the questions that I want to ask do you feel that as well (laughs) Yeah, it's probably because we spoke about it and it's one of those things it's like you feel like it's not flowing as naturally because you've spoken about it again but I think that you just whatever's coming into your intuition you know what whatever okay. wants to come in okay so <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we, let's just I guess try to just push in and jump into the to the to the rough stuff the the conversations that are difficult to have Cause that's where I yeah. want to take this, but I'm, I'm feeling blocks to get there. Um, mm. so what's a good question to kind of lead us there? Maybe, maybe let's start when, cause I know that you, let's, let's set it up a little bit, I guess, because I know that there was a little bit of struggle regarding sexual trauma in your childhood. Um, stuff that I know a lot of people go through, but maybe you experienced it a little bit more heavy than most. Mm. Did you realize, was it not till like later in life that you realized that this was sexual trauma and something that wasn't right? Or was this something that you kind of knew sooner than like, let's say 10, 15 years down the road? I, I honestly think that, On a subconscious level, when I was like 13, 14, I I think that it started to dawn on me that like something had happened and it disturbed my spirit and my, you know, it just, it disturbed something, you know, something wasn't right because I mean, what, what kid, teenage, like young kid I'm not even a teen am I a teenager yeah I'm a teenager at 13 14 but what kid starts self-harming when they don't they've not seen that you know it's like there's a there's there's something that's coming up there that 
I'm not even conscious about, like I can't even really understand why I'm doing something like that. So for me, I think that that's when I learned that there's something trying to be expressed. And I don't know if you've ever heard or spoke to someone about self-harm, but I'll explain it from my perspective. Like self, when I used to cut myself physically, it used to relieve emotional pain. It felt very satisfying for me. And I know that sounds weird and people could never understand why I enjoyed self-harming, but it would be a temporary relief of like, it's strange, but like the physical pain would take away the emotional pain. It almost was so weird that that was like my coping mechanism. And that's what it was essentially. Um, So I knew at that point when I was just doing that, and I'd had no prompts, I'd not learned that from anywhere, I'd not seen that, that something was not okay. You know, like, that's not normal. (laughs) Right, that there's like something you're trying to express almost. It's almost like the way it's resonating with me is that the energy was kind of built up inside of you and the only way to let it out was to physically bleed from it. You know, when you put it like, it's like a symbolic for that. It's like a way of being able to express something, let, let something out. And if you think about my experience with the sexual abuse, it happened. And when it happened, and when we, me and my sister dis- discovered it together, what happened was we then told my mom and we came out about it because we were like such young children, like nine. My sister was nine, I was 11. From that point, we told my mom because we're like, our mom is going to protect us, surely. <laughs> and then we were told to basically say that we'd lied. So if you think about that, we're, we're suppressing that. So that's like, it makes sense then that I wanted to express. So let's, I mean, maybe let's run through the timeline. Well, two things I'm thinking of is yeah. number one, I think I'm going to have to put in our original conversation at the beginning of this because it's, you know, to give people maybe credence. So feel free to repeat stuff, you know, feel free to, um, kind of go over that stuff again, because I might have forgotten. Um, but maybe let's take a second to appreciate the timeline of how we got to self-harming, right? You're saying it was at the age of 13. And let's say in between the ages of three, let's say, and 13, what I've pieced together is that there's a couple things that occurred. One would have been, you know, sexual abuse. One would have been being told to lie and being told by your parents that lying is the right thing or your mom, I guess, specifically that lying was the right thing to do and then self-harming. So could you lay out a little bit of a timeline so that we're able to understand? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that like generally my life as a child, I remember a lot of happy memories. Like I remember playing, I remember being imaginative, creative. So my life generally was pretty good as in I don't I'm not conscious of like it being bad as such like I lived in a very kind of like first world poverty um kind of like no one no money um so that was a struggle there would often be times where we didn't have say you know like just resources um but 
I guess like my childhood was, I, I remember a lot of happy memories really, but there is obviously a lot of things that, are, you know, not, not functional. Let's just use the word functional. Cause I feel like that's, that's a, a good word to use, not functional. Um, and then it's like when, I guess like for me that the most life changing event that happened was when I was 11 and when my sister was nine. So that's like when things just, you know, just took this huge 180 and was like, whoa, like I had to grow up, you know? So that's like the most significant part of me transitioning into this whole new life or reality of like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is, this is insane. <laughs> um, the abuse actually had been going on for, um, it must have started when I was like 10. So th the abuse had obviously already started. Um, and, and so, yeah, so, I mean, timeline that the abuse had happened and was happening. And when I was about 11, that's when I then came out and told my sister. So that actually had been going on for, I mean, so hard to have specific like I don't know the dates exactly but I just remember that it was normalized it was like a normal thing that was happening um you know from it, it so my stepdad was the person who was looking after us I should probably add that in my my stepdad was the person who was taking care of us he was taking us to school he was cooking for us my mum was in bed a lot of the time so my mum is like really depressed she's got loads of like things wrong with her mental health and physically she's got a load of things as well so my mum's coping mechanism is to just sleep and avoid everything and when I say that we thought that was normal we had friends come round after school one time at 3 p.m and they would be like where's your mum we were like she's in bed thinking nothing of it and they would be like that's weird we were like, what? And then it was only when we would go to friends' houses and their mums are like doing things and they're up and cleaning and cook and we would be like, is it our mum that's weird or is it their mum that's weird? Like, <laughs> legit, legit. That's, that's how normalised it was for our mum to be in bed. So that's kind of the dynamic was like my mum was predominantly in bed her whole life and our stepdad was the person that was there parenting us and obviously grooming us at the same time but not funny but like you know nervous laugh it sounds mental but it is i guess it's a little bit mental i mean there's a lot of things in life that are crazy so i mean i yeah i get it and i i think the the laughing for instance like i know i laughed a little bit there i think it's kind of just that emotional release of not really yeah. sure what to say or how to process things. And it's kind of just like this <laughs> laughing just as a way to, for your body to kind of shake out those, those feelings. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. So and it's my coping mechanism as well, laughing. So, you know, like even pain turns into laughter. So I've learned how to make transmute it into laughter. It's so strange. That is, that's <laughs> interesting. I mean, because I know yeah. when you laugh, you release like a lot of happy chemicals, which yeah, maybe there's a yeah. weird, not a weird, weird is such a weird word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's some sort of mental connection there with like, you know, pain and then trying to compensate by laughing in effect. So, yeah. so let me at least try to tell you your story back to you based on how I understand it. Correct me where I'm yeah. wrong. 
Yeah, let's do it. So age of three, your biological dad kind of moved out. Um, and roughly around the same time, this new guy moved in, which is a little interesting. Do you know how your mom would have met this new guy if she was just bedridden majority of the time? Well, there's stories and I don't know which story is true. I've also learned that adults lie. Adults don't like to tell the truth. And honestly, the amount of different stories I've heard from mom and dad, mom and dad just have completely different stories and none of them tell the, like, I don't know who's telling the truth. And I say to them, I don't care. I just want to know the truth. I don't care who's wrong or right or any of this, but as you know, um, there was one story, um, and I think there is truth in this. I think, did my mum admit this? Um, my mum actually started to have like an affair with my stepdad. And no, no, no. So it gets more messed up than this. No, I need to tell you. My dad's sister was going out with my stepdad. So my auntie was going out with my stepdad. Uh, your, and my mum. Okay, so your aunt was going out with your now stepdad before he was your stepdad yeah so my dad your dad was going out with my mom okay and my dad's sister was going out with my stepdad okay i see pretty much yeah (laughs) that's interesting it's a bit much yeah yeah so the story that i know and I, i feel is true is that they my stepdad and mom started so my mom started to cheat on my dad with my stepdad and my stepdad cheated on my auntie with my mom (laughs) so i think i think that's how it all kind of happened well and what i find very fascinating and we'll get to this point in the story is i know it's a certain point in the story your mom starts telling you to lie about the kind of the sexual stuff that came and Mm. to me it's this is all sounding like pure projection of essentially the situation that they bestowed upon you. It was like, Hey, we lied about our sexual past. Now we want you to do the same and continue that. Let's say negative, bad karmic loop of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Doesn't it? Uh, Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) Mm, Um, mm. So, yeah. So let's see here. You were three years old. Um, they let's say decided your dad your biological dad left your stepdad then moves in do you remember times when your mom would have been out of bed or was it mostly just she was pretty much bedridden yeah like no so when i was mom was up mom was mom was up when we were really younger so probably around between the ages of like three so when i moved to the uk because i i'm from ireland originally so i moved to the uk when i was three so between three and like eight mum was pretty awake and active and she would be up and stuff but i but because mum was taking speed so mum was taking um i don't know what speed i don't know if it's called speed i don't know what the actual terminology is for it i I know it is speed Um, i don't know what the chemical name is but okay okay so it's called speed cool um so mum took speed and that was the thing that made her do things so you'd always know when mum was on speed because she would be cleaning the house she'd be up she'd be cooking she'd be operating um but then the crash from the speed 
was three, four days in bed. Um, so it was kind of like that cycle. So I remember her, she used to party a lot with her friends. Um, I do remember like snippets like this where she would be partying. Um, and my mum was young. Let's not forget my mum had me when she was 18. So she was a young mum. Um, I don't think she ever got to go and live her life, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, mum was up in in those occasions I remember that like but she predominantly was in bed and it you know we really would be knocking on and mom mom can you get up can you get up like this would be me and my sister all of the time mom can you get out of bed like we wanted her to to be there and look after us and have her presence like it was neglect it was like it was very neglectful Uh, emotionally um, she's just very vacant do you feel like that you took over, maybe not at this point, but did you feel a sense of responsibility for your sister yeah. to fill that role? Yeah, I was I was mum, you know, I did take on mum role. I did. And responsibility is one of the biggest struggles I've had in life. You know, I feel emotion coming up. It's okay. Um, I really struggle with taking on responsibility for everyone around me and that's like really heavy i'm really good at letting emotion flow now can you see this <laughs> um it's it's really affected me you know to to be like the person who's always responsible for people the person who's like like i really struggle with responsibility but in a beautiful way i am so good at taking responsibility like too good <laughs> you know very good at being like dropping my ego taking responsibility in situations knowing when i'm but like to blame or to like need to own my stuff so it's kind of a double-edged sword <laughs> in a way um but yeah i took on one role for sure and then especially when the when the sexual abuse came out it was like f- even more you know it was like right mum's not protecting us so I, I really am the one looking after us now. And, yeah. <laughs> and and so I'm trying to remember how that all rolled out um, in our earlier conversations, but what I, from what I remember, and I'd love for you to clarify, because again, I, I'm going to put those interviews at the beginning of this. What it was that the kind of the sexual abuse started, I think before you were 10 and then it kind of got normalized around the age of 10 or 11. Um, did you first realize that this was happening to your sister as well? Or did you realize that something was wrong before then? I guess it was happening to me. And I probably, as a protective measure, because I'm the oldest, I was probably thinking, I need to find out if this is happening to my sister. You know, she's younger than me, but need to care for her and protect her. And that's kind of like whatever came over me because it was very, I went into my sister's room and was like, is this happening to you? And she said, yeah. And then we've kind of, I mean, we embraced each other and we just cried and hugged each other for for so long. I just can't even imagine how two young children have that capacity to connect on something like that. You know, it's so crazy to me now just 
I can just see us as two little children hugging about something so huge and knowing it's wrong, but not quite knowing the depth of how wrong it is, you know, how big it is, how impactful that's that's going to be on us. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess that it was just an urge for me to be like, is this happening to my sister as well? And that's then. Was that yeah. the, was that the like epiphic moment of this is wrong? Like, did you, did you reconcile that it was wrong before or was the thought process more along the lines of like, wait, what if he's doing this to my sister as well? Wait, I wouldn't want this to happen to my sister. Like how did that kind of mentally, like the mm. wrongness versus like it being your sister? That makes sense. Yeah. So it, it felt wrong. So when, when he was doing it to to me, it felt wrong. I felt uncomfortable, but it was done in a very kind of like covert way. It wasn't done intrusively. It was very just just weirdly done, like it was normal, you know? It was like the way that he would touch me was almost as if it's okay that I'm touching you like this, you know? It's not strange that I'm touching you here. So my own body, my own intuition knew that it was wrong because my body felt weird. But as a child, I couldn't intellectually understand why it was weird, you know? Because I'm like, this is, I just, I'm a child. How do I know that that's wrong? I don't know that that's wrong as a child. So it just, I, I was just going off my intuition, I guess. Like my body felt repulsed, <laughs> you know? My body would be rejecting, the, I would be wanting to get away from him in, in those situations. So I guess that, that's enough for me to know that it was wrong as a child that was enough <laughs> and so yeah and so then um if we keep the timeline going you kind of like talked with your sister mm. you guys embraced was there what was kind of like the next measure after that was there a, a pull to say something to your mom what was the next like okay he's doing this to my sister as well something's wrong here we need to do something what was that next something well I think that was the, as children trying to decide, what do we do next? What are we supposed to do? And that's, we actually were really scared. We were like, we don't know what to do. We don't, and we were like, that's when we came to the conclusion, surely the only thing to do is tell mom. Like we have to tell mom. And we were like, oh, I don't know. Like, we don't know. I guess we just didn't understand. Um, we were just scared of like what that would mean. Um, but we did, we did come to the agreement, right? The next step is to tell mom, and yeah, we we I think did we tell a, a, a like mom's friend first? Maybe we did. Maybe we told mom's friend first, or and maybe she helped us to tell mom. I can't remember the the like the actual facts and logistics. That is such a messy time of my life, but. We did end up telling mom basically, and yeah, yeah. And if I remember, wanna... yeah, I just I guess I want to point out what I remember um, because in my mind I'm trying to keep it all organized myself. I mean, it's a it's a crazy situation to re first of all to even recall right. Like I <laughs> personally, I mean, I've kind of expect experienced sexual trauma not to the extent that you did it by any manager but like there's a weird thing where it's like kind of hard for your brain to like 
remember, was that how this happened? Was that how this happened? Yeah. Did that happen next? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so then you, if I remember in the story, you went to your mom, you told her, um, at that point, did she tell you to lie? Because I thought there was also like a situation where you went to the police and then that's when, yeah. is that when you were told to lie? So what happened was we told mom, she obviously like, because the mom's friend had been involved as well, the police were wrong and it was kind of like, oh, like this is wrong. He needs to go like kicked out. Um, we rang the police, we give statements, like it all was coming out and he was gone. And mum was kind of like, I think mum legit was just shell-shocked. Like when I'm thinking about having a visual of her at that time, I think she just didn't know what to do. Um, so we rang the police, we told them, we gave statements. It was like a whole thing that it was like, oh, we're like, this is all happening. Like it's all been resolved almost like, and then, I mean, and then, and then mum started disappearing with my little brother, my little brother who was born to my stepdad, um, started just acting weird. We were like, she never leaves the house, so why is she leaving the house now? Um, and at this time, my mum's friend was actually just horrified, you know, like she was like, sure, she was like that's so messed up she's like this is your children this is screwed like what are you doing kind of thing and then yeah like mum was going and meeting the stepdad <laughs> mum was going actually meeting him and staying with him and then within i don't know the exact timeline but within i don't know it could have been a month could have been six weeks whatever it was that's when the conversation happened. Mum was like, he's coming back and you're going to have to tell the police that you've lied and you're going to have to say that you were attention seeking because otherwise he's going to go to jail. Do you want him to be beat up? It was like the guilt and the, what about your little brother? He's not going to have a dad. I mean, we're, I'm naive still now. I'm naive as an adult. As a child, I was even more naive um, and innocent. And, you know, we're like, of course we don't want him to get beat up. We we loved this person. We, we, we loved him. He was our father. He was our father figure. He cared for us. He gave us love and, effect and affection in a messed up way. <laughs> I mean, he was the person giving us the love of a parent. No, no one else was giving us love as a parent. He was the only person giving us love as a parent. So in a really messed up way, we loved him. So that was more of a mind, like, it was, yeah, it was messed up, man. It was really messed up. That's wild. I mean, yeah, and I mean, if I was putting myself in your shoes, your your mom isn't giving you any affection or attention. She's out of the house. She's in bed. And it's, from my experience, and it sounds like it's similar to yours, like whenever you're saying like he loved us, it's like, well, when you're a child, it's almost like you don't, first of all, love is a very large word. Like there are very many things that fall under the love yeah. category, like the, yeah. the way you love your sister, different than the way you love your dad, the way you yeah. love singing. And so that word, like it, it, like it almost has this proclivity to allow 
more gu- like guilt to almost like, well, you love him, right? Or will you love this, yeah. don't you? So like, why would you do yeah, yeah. that, you know? Yeah, or like you love your brother. You don't want your brother to be without a dad. Or like, Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we don't want anyone to go through, like we don't want someone to get beaten up, like especially not someone that we love, like that's our father. Like, of course we don't want that, right. <laughs> you know? And if that means that we have to lie, so that he's okay, then sure. Surely we're going to be okay. We don't right. know. We don't know. <laughs> Nobody gets hurt if I lie. <laughs> yeah. So was that, so what, what's the timeline here then? I'm trying to reposition myself. Yeah. So, so from that point, that obviously got more dysfunctional because outsiders were now involved it wasn't just in our little home net where things were happening and no one was knowing now it's like mum's friend knew that mum would had let him back in and it was a bit weird and you know my steps stepdad's children thought we were lying because we've just told everyone that we're lying so we received a lot of abuse from older adult people saying how like messed up we are and you know all of these things and then my little brother is stuck in the middle of all of this as well somewhere and we we just had so much going on and then he was obviously our stepdad was back in the house and this was when you know that's obviously psychologically probably messed with us on a whole big level that we had to just pretend as if everything was normal and happy and life was normal and you just got a you know classic suppression <laughs> we just get on with it um and weirdly we kind of adapted to it sounds really messed up but we we just adapted to it and the kind of became a a normal dynamic Except for my sister used to put things in front of the door so we couldn't get into the room and, and you know, she was living in fear. Um, and so and this I was, was very independent. Was that after he came back? Like at this point you guys were like, okay, we got to kind of keep our distance from him the best we can, even though he's living under the same roof. Yeah, I guess, you know, like it was, yeah, I guess we just carried on living our lives and stuff like that. Um, I was very distant and very independent and very kind of like, I, I obviously took on a very big kind of energy of like, you can't mess with me now because I'll mess with you kind of vibe because he never did anything to me again. Um, But a couple of years had passed and he actually did touch my sister again. Um. And I think because it because she was very dramatic, very she was very out there, she lied a lot. And you know, I mean, he took advantage of her character because he thought no one's gonna believe her because she was like that. You know, it was like, oh, you know, classic Gabby, she's just lying again. You know, it was it was actually unbearable sometimes how much of a drama queen she was. And I think he took advantage of that because he thought no one's going to believe her. He couldn't have done it to me again because I was too level-headed. I was too smart. I was too grown up. I was too like, you can't mess with me. Um, so he didn't touch me again because I think he knew that if I'd have told people, they would have believed me. And my sister just went off the rails. She didn't tell anyone, um, but she just started being very destructive, very kind of like 
just crazy, you know, very like the the behavior was wild and we just couldn't understand what was happening. But it turns out he was, you know, he was touching her again. Um, So at that point, so that had happened, you know, within a couple of years of him being back. That at that point, that's when Mum got rid of him for good. So that was the end of him being in our lives, as such. Okay, so let's. Okay, let me repeat back the timeline just so I'm clear on yeah, it. Yeah, with it. Okay, so so three, biological dad moves out. The new dad moves in. Then around ages ten to nine, you're t- ten. Your sister's nine. That's whenever you eight. She would have. Been. Oh, she was eight. So you were eight. ten. She was eight. That's whenever you guys realized like that this was happening or that um, maybe that's about when it started. That was when it started, yeah. And then ele- you were 11, yeah. she was nine. And that was the first time when you guys embraced mm. each other, you knew it was wrong. That's whenever you yeah. kind of came out and were like, hey, like, you know, this is all screwed up. Like, mom, this is what stepdad's doing. Then about, yeah, you, I guess at that point would have filed a police report. And then a few months later, your mom starts seeing him again tells you to lie about it and then over the course of the next few months stepdad moves back in you guys are then like kind of putting up you're putting up a little bit more of a fight to prevent it from happening yet within another sounds like two or three years so you'd have probably been like 14 and your sister 12 ish he then um proceeded to kind of touch her again Mm. And then, so at that point Mm. in the story, did your sister kind of come to you and tell you and like, did you, would you have believed her? Actually, she would have been, it was actually around, it was, must've been more like years later. It was more when she was 15 because I was 17 because what happened was I took responsibility and when we found out, so we found out because my sister was acting out and she's been very self-destructive and she'd told the family friend. So, you know, the original family friend who knew about it the first time, she told her. Um, so then I found out and what I did was I took my sister to the doctors at 17 and I said, I think my sister is narcissistic. <laughs> I actually, I actually had been researching like my sister's got narcissistic personality disorder, the way that she's acting, she can't build relationships with people, like all of these things. So I like took my sister to the doctors because I was like, look, I think there's something wrong with my sister and I want to help her and protect her. And the doctor was like, why do you think your sister has got this, like these issues? And I said, I think it's because we've been abused. And at 17, you're classed as a child. So they had to ring social services. Um, they had to, they were like, we have to, like, you're a child. So we have to do something about this. We, it's not just like you're an adult and you can take care of this. Wow. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care what happens to my mom. I don't care if something bad happens to her. I need to be responsible for my younger sister and make sure she's safe. Good for you. I mean, yeah. and, and so then, okay, so at this point in the timeline, you're 17, she's 15. So, like, what happens with child services? Do they, like, come do, like, an investigation? Yeah, so they come, um, and it's a little bit below, right? They were more concerned about my little brother because my little brother 
was younger and we were like, has it happened to him? Would he have? But we kind of came to the general consensus that he's done it to us because we're not his children. And we actually don't think he would have done it to his biological children. Um, but anyway, I mean, we'll never know that. Um, but we, um, what happened was we were trying to get justice. So the second time round, we were trying to get it go to go to, I think that the, the social services wanted to push it into like court and make sure that something happened. And unfortunately, um, the they just was like, it will not hold up. You will not, it will not hold up. You'll get ripped apart because you've said that you were attention seeking the first time round. Like you'll just get ripped apart as, as teenagers. Like it, they just, they, they told us that they told us that straight. Like you will not hold up in court. There is no, there is no justice for you here because <laughs> not only has it been, been, not only has it been years, like not only has it been years and it's your word against his, but like you literally, you said you lied the first time. So they, they're just going to think that you're making this up, that you're intentional. And we were just like, right, man. wow. <laughs> I mean, there's a, I can take the lesson from there, right there. Like the power of, you know, truth versus lying. Like it's. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Like it's actually deep. And I'm sure that left a little bit more of an impersonation on you as well. Being told there's no judicial system justice. I guess it was one of those confirming things of like, okay there's no one to rely on like authority figures there's people who are supposed to but i've just been learning so much from okay mums don't protect me like parents adults are not i i no wonder i had a breakdown i swear like my whole reality was just being broken in so many ways like i come from being such an innocent beautiful creative child that just loved life was so happy and expressionate and i just i honestly when i was a child i loved life I was so joyous I, I'm joyous now but I was so happy and I mean all children are right but like I just remember loving the beauty of life and playing and and butterflies and nature and sunshine and you know I just loved life so much and I just could never have prepared myself for how shattering reality was you know like really how shattering life could be um so for me, that that whole process is just yeah, it's it was a bit much for my sensitive soul. It was a lot, um, but yeah, there was no justice, no justice. And what really triggered me about that whole situation of no justice was I was also um, there was also no justice for a situation that had happened when I was raped at thirteen, um, thirteen or fourteen. Like I can't remember exactly what age it was. I think it was thirteen. Um, and I, it's the same situation, like it came out, people told me I was a liar, I was attention seeking, and it was just like, surely not, sure, like I think because of what had happened with my stepdad, that made the, the whole situation happening with the rape, it made me feel like even more, like I was like, am I attention seeking? Like I actually didn't think that I'd been raped. I, I didn't I didn't think that I'd been raped bearing in mind I was 13 wow. I didn't want to have I didn't want to have this situation happen but 
this this person was older than me. Um, I was at a friend's house staying there. And again, it was just that whole process of like, you're lying, you're, you're, you're attention seeking. And I was just like, am I? Am I attention seeking? Am I lying? Is it my fault? Did I want that? That's how I, that's how I lived with that. Because I actually thought that I was the one in the wrong for, for that situation. And I don't know, that's why I started self-harming. So there we go. There's the timeline to bring you to the self-harm. I mean, that's crazy. And that's, uh, that's for sure at a large scale. Cause I know on a, on like a, maybe a less heavy scale, I personally know like there's ideas I've had or situations I've been myself where, you know, I, it's like, I can feel, and I know something's true, but the outside world's like telling you something else. Mm -hmm. And so you have this like introspection about yourself where you're like, did I do that? Or is that how that actually came off? Like how much of that actually is true? Like, am I, am I the one that's wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And so was, and so did you say, so let's, Whew, first of all, who? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so was the self harming then after the rape at thirteen, or was that later? That was at thirteen. Yeah, it was. It was. I. I think I started self. It would make sense that it was around fourteen. Um. Again, I. It's. I hate not knowing fact. Like being like certain about these timelines, but it's such a mess. Like it's such a. You know, you just that you're not writing these things down in a journal. It must have been fourteen because it will have the rape would have happened when I was thirteen, and then it because it came out like a year later. Um, came out a year later. So yeah, and and the yeah it came as in like so the rape happened, and then I lived with it for. I think it was like nine months to a year. So it must have come out when I was about 14. Um, and I remember telling, it was a friend that I told first and it was actually her who said to me, that's rape. She was like, what's happened to you is is rape. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and like, and she's like, you didn't want to do it. She was like, he's raped you. And I was like, Oh, I don't know, like, because I wasn't screaming. And she was like, it doesn't matter, you know? And then that's also, like, now I can understand. I mean, speak to me. I'm, like, a very kind of, like, headstrong person. When I was a teenager, if anybody ever tried to hurt me, I would do this. I would, you know, this is what I would do. If anybody tried to, like, do anything to me, I'd be, like, I was very like that. You're very outgoing you know? about so, it. So, yeah, yeah, very kind of like I can like hold myself kind of thing. And then when I had that experience, I did, I was very passive, very like submissive, very kind of like just didn't know. I, I, I wasn't like kicking off or angry or, you know, and so then I guess like that made me feel even more so like it wasn't real, like, you know, like because I was expecting that surely if it was happening, then this is how you react. Um. So yeah, the, the, the friend actually sh shone light on that. And that's when then I was like, had to tell my parents. So yeah, that's when I told my parents, bearing in mind, this is after the the abuse. And my stepdad's reaction was, it was strange. He was so angry. 
like he was really angry that this had happened to me and he was going to go and like kill this guy and i was like is that normal that he feels that way like but for me, I remember thinking, like, you've abused me. How are you angry? <laughs> you've done the same thing as what this, like, obviously, the, what this guy had done was, was worse sexually. He'd, he'd been a bit more, like, he's, like, actually raped me. But I was like, you've you've abused me. Like, I don't get why you're so angry right now. <laughs> like, it was such a weird dynamic. I find that really fascinating you say that because as you were telling that story, in my head, I was even thinking, like, I I thought something along the lines of like, I bet her dad when she, or your stepdad, when he heard about this, got mad. And then you said that. And I was yeah. like, Oh shit. Wow. So you picked up on that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And let me know if this resonates with you because this is how it hit me is, do you think that there might've been like a feeling of, and I know this is going to sound bad, but like a feeling that like you were your stepdad's, like you belonged to him kind of thing. Like, like he didn't want anybody probably. else uh, like hooking up with you mm. at all. Mm, probably. I'd say so. Some probably element of did that. have that kind of like attachment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's probably quite a normal thing, like a, a normal thing in that situation. Yeah. He was very like that about my sister as well. You know? Like there was Very, like controlling, like no boys yeah. kind of thing. I mean, I did have a, I did get a boyfriend when I was about 14, 15. So was he happy about it? Probably not. He was very miserable. Grumper. I don't know if that was because I had a boyfriend, but he was, he was like that anyway, you know? Yeah. He's like a miserable old man. Um, so I would, let's keep it going. I don't yeah. know a smooth way to transition into my next question, but it, I, I, it's something that I really want to discuss because in my previous conversation with my, the hypnotherapist and in the books that I'm reading about journey of the soul, they all talk about past life regression, life after life, life between lives. And I remember in your story and when we had talked, I don't even know if it's been mentioned yet in uh, the other interviews, the earlier ones, but self-harm kind of led to suicide attempts. Um, and I believe you said that there were two. So could you walk us through when and how the first one happened? Yeah. So let's, if we could encapsulate then, so that whole situation between the ages of then 14 and 20, that was when I was kind of, I guess then as well, coming into my own, learning that I'm a, you know, learning about myself and, and all of that. That was when I was going through life trying to learn who I am and what my place is in the world and obviously living with all of these things. I didn't have anyone who was conscious or knew what I, we didn't have anybody validating anything or working through these things so I had to just show up as a normal person a normal teenager like my friends and you know like I guess I, I started drinking actually really heavily at 14 um but that's didn't feel weird because all of the other kids were doing it so it didn't feel like I was doing that because it was weird it just felt like I was doing that because everybody else was doing it Actually, what I saw, I, I noticed is like that became 
a thing for me where I was using alcohol as a way to express myself. So I actually was, I, I actually think I was an alcoholic, but like not in the way that like an alcoholic drinking every day, but a binge drinker. So I, I would do this a lot between that time. I started taking drugs heavily um, when I was like 17, 18. Um, I started smoking weed when I was like 14 as well. So 14, drinking, take like smoking lots of weed um, and just trying to figure myself out. And then that's like, I mean, when you, real in quick, that time. Real quick, when you said you were doing yeah. drugs, which, uh, what drugs? So when I, when I was 18, I started doing like, you know, party drugs, like rave drugs, like MD, um, like ecstasy pills, uh, cocaine, um, ketamine, like the, the all loads of it, all of it. I was wild. I was crazy. Um, again, didn't feel weird because everybody was doing it. Like, didn't think it was weird. Um, so yeah, that I mean, like, there's not much to like break down in that time. I guess like there is, but there's not. Like, but that whole time between fourteen and twenty, that's when I kind of like was depressed anxious um i wouldn't have noticed really because i didn't understand mental health when i was 18 i remember that was like the biggest do you remember when i was telling you before about like having you know like that reality smashed of like the world i remember when i was 18 that was like for me the it was so difficult to then i'm an adult now and i have to look after myself and I'd never been parented, really, like not functionally. So it was, I had to be this adult and that was really tough for me, really tough. I really struggled with being an adult because I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know how to be an adult. Um, so, yeah, I I think that's what probably, that was probably the start of really when I started getting really like more depressed, more dark, more hopeless, more you know, going into those really lower states of consciousness, lack of no return, and then the drugs, the alcohol, not helping, my ability to not process my own feelings or emotions, not even understand my own mental health. I think that's then obviously what led to the to the breakdown. And then I had I had a break I had a mental breakdown when I was twenty. And I mean it's beautiful because it's kind of like obviously all of that that had happened for the past however long has just got too much and my body's just broken you know it's just been too much and I've broken out of it I needed to have the breakdown to break break through it all um the the the, the breakdown came at 20 I was very intoxicated of course as always um and yeah I mean I thought about suicide a lot I was very depressed very dark very kind of like miserable and just low energy you know like I wasn't a good person to be around like I actually even had a friend that said to me I can't be your friend anymore because you're too depressed and I was like right that feels like a good time to not be my friend like very victim victim mindset you know wow <laughs> that's crazy yeah. I mean first of all to even be able to acknowledge like and that's an interesting thing about the idea of depression and really trauma in general, right? They're, they're so linked together of how do you know that something was 
and this is an issue I had for a while. Is like I didn't really even realize that, like, though minor compared to you, it's like I didn't even realize like that this sexual trauma was trauma until I was like twenty five, or like you're mm-hmm. saying, like if you're always in a depressed state, how do you know that that's depression? Like, how can we? And that makes the mental health conversation so difficult. Of okay, well, yeah, this is depression versus like this is how you should feel. It's like, well, okay, should's a weird word, but like, you know, like here's what depression feels like. Here's what happiness feels like. It's like discussing even something like that feels like so difficult to even begin the mental health conversation. And and people judge you, like people judge you because one day you you're okay and you can show up and you're doing normal things, and then. You know, I was judged because, like, my partner at the time, he was like, I couldn't get out of bed. And you're just lazy. You're just, why are you not getting out of bed and doing things? And I'd be like, I don't know, but, like, this feels worse. Like, why are you calling me lazy? I, I can't, I don't have any energy to move. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but, like, you calling me lazy doesn't feel helpful. Um, But people would judge you because I could still go out and be social and ha- and have, like, normal i guess from the outside it would be like you you seem to be fine to me you, you know people people are like you, you you look like you're doing fine like people are so judgmental like you can't be depressed you look fine you're fine you'd look at you you're fine you're out here having a drink with us and it's like that feels more like you're alone because you you're kind of like well no one understands what's got like you can't ex- explain it explain then how you're doing that but still feeling so dark and I think something that probably also occurs is along the lines of like, you know, where like maybe your friends in that situation also had their own issues and maybe they weren't even in like the best place of happiness or knowing what true happiness feels like, because that's something I've realized is whatever you're putting out in the world, it's going to give it back to you, you know? So if you're kind of in a dark place yourself, you're not going to be attracting like, the most let's say enlightened people you know you're going to be attracting people who are roughly a similar energetic vibe in it 100 and now i look back and i'm like actually that partner really struggled his mom had like lots of bad mental health he had his, it's like what you said but we're all unconscious of that like who's conscious of all of that stuff when you're when you're going through it it's like you're actually just surrounded by a lot of traumatized people and no one knows what's going on everybody's traumatized and everybody's um, depressed and anxious and like but no one knows <laughs> right you know right so that's um yeah yeah so that's what led to the to the to the breakdowns and that's what that was my breaking point and i it was bound to happen i guess it was inevitable that it was going to happen because i'd been taking a lot of drugs and i was very sense i actually got drug-induced psychosis um, what's that which was it's like psychosis, but drugging, like I'd got it from the drugs that I was taking. So I started to, I basically, if I would have carried on, I would have got schizophrenia. I would have uh, lost my mind. Yeah. So I started to see things. I started to hear voices. Um, I started to be very paranoid and very like scared. Um, I actually, because I was brought up a, a, a Catholic I actually had this heightened sense of God and devil. Um, And when I went to the doctor, at this point, I was pretty scared, you know. I was hearing voices and stuff like seeing things, shadows, and I was pretty scared. And I went to the doctor and I was like, I'm like, 
I'm scared. Like I feel something's, I think that I'm like pushing the boundaries of something. I'm a bit worried. And I just told the doctor straight. I was like, she asked me straight up, like, are you taking drugs? I was like, yeah, I'm taking all of these drugs. I told her everything that I was taking. Um, And she was like, it sounds like, I was like, I'm so scared because I think the devil's trying to get me. And she was like, it sounds like you've just heightened you know, because you heightened the sense of God, but you've also like with God comes devil. So it's like you've heightened both of those because I was very sad to get a bit more like obsessed with like religion and like, is God going to save me? Like, I don't know. But I was scared. I actually, at the time, this is scary, but like, I felt like the devil was watching me. I, I could, I was creating that, that reality of like, there was a, a demons watching me through the window. I was so fucking scared. Like, I can't even express to you how scared I was. Um, and and it was so, and I mean, we know about energy, right? I, I don't believe, sorry, I don't believe in religion, God, now, just to quote unquote, I'm just going to say that and we could dig into that um, next. But I um, I was feeling this energy. I was feeling dark energy around me. I was petrified. And I felt like every turn something was getting me and I started to see black shadows flying. I could hear the word, my name, Josephine. And I, it wasn't, I mean, I don't know, it was obviously me creating that voice, but it felt separate from it. And I was tripping out, but I was still taking drugs. And I, was, I actually stopped smoking weed when I was 18 because of this, because I was paranoid, so paranoid. Um, and it was too much. I was losing my mind. wow (laughs) um yeah yeah i mean that's that's crazy and it it really brings me to an understanding of like reality and what we constitute as being real or what we constitute as you know being a what is real because to you those things were real like they were real like you know it's like in your the way you kind of phrase that is like that you feel like you were kind of let's say making it up but i i personally don't know i mean energies are everywhere and your outside world's a reflection of your inside world and so if your inside world was you know i i mean to put it as light as possible but like kind of as much negative energy or heavy and dark energy that you were holding on to it wasn't being processed it wasn't being let out and so this was like in my opinion, a way that your subconscious was creating this, I don't know, this reality on this. No, it is. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's exactly what it was. Yeah. Just because I guess, and here's the weird thing is like, just because other people didn't see it doesn't mean that it wasn't real. No, it was real for me. hundred percent. Like that darkness was real. I was experiencing it on a real level. Um, now I can see it was a projection of, the darkness that was within me, you know, I can see that now. And so was this, and so was this kind of like a part of the darkness that pushed you towards um, the first suicide attempt? Yeah. Yeah. I, I am. Yeah. I couldn't live with myself. I, I didn't, I was hopeless. I really, I actually, for me, suicide was the idealistic ideal kind of thing it was like that it was the it was it was almost like a relief it was like this is going to be better this is going to be i'm going to be free of suffering i'm going to be happy 
So for me, this felt like I actually convinced myself that this was like hell and that we were living in hell and actually it would be better for me to get out of here. Um, now I see that it's just, you know, we construct our own realities. But um, for me, that's it just pushed me to the edge. I was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this. Life is too hard. It's too heavy. I'm done. Get me a ticket out of here. I, I can't deal with it. I can't cope because I like I was a mess like I was I was I couldn't tolerate the emotion the build-up the not knowing how to regulate my myself my nervous system all of these things like I just would be crying in such a like it was like sobbing and I would just be sobbing my heart out constantly you know like I was just so heavy with emotions and trauma and it was like it's just bound to happen, isn't it? When you when you think about it, when you get to it, it's like a pressure point of like it needs to release. Um, so yeah, I did. I did try to take take my own life, and I the experience was um, crazy because I was in an apartment by myself, a uni flat, and I was very intoxicated, and I'd taken all of the oh, th- I'd taken all of these tablets. No, the first time I wasn't intoxicated. Sorry, that was the second time. The first time I wasn't intoxicated. I just take I just took loads and loads and loads of tablets. I'd been saving up all of my tablets, all of my medication, preparing for it. So calculated. Um, but I'd been saving up all of my antidepressants, all of my antipsychotics, all of like all of these like tablets that I could take, paracetamol, just all of these like pretty strong tablets. And I was like, I'm just gonna take them all. And actually, I mean, after researching, you can't really kill yourself on tablets. Like it takes a very, it's very hard to do. (laughs) I didn't know this. So I've just ruined my body. But I um, took so many. I took probably about 300 tablets. So I took a lot of tablets. Um, Yeah, it was a lot. And I put myself obviously unconscious because of that. Like, I mean, what, you what take tablet, a drug like that. What, drug, what drugs were just random tablets? There were a bunch of different stuff. Paracetamol. Yeah, just paracetamol, antidepressants, like all of the antidepressants that I'd been building up over the time. Um, I had so many different ones. Um, yeah, just so many different, just random stuff, like just codeine, anything that I had, like anything that I had, basically. Um and yeah, I was messaging my um, partner at the time, like, uh, you know, the very classic, I'm sorry, I love you, I'm leaving now. <laughs> it was kind of like the, you know, obviously very alarming. And he drove, obviously, in a panic to get there. And when he got there, obviously, the door was like, he had to get someone to break it in. And then he dragged me, and he said that my body was like a dead weight. And he was dragging me across the ground to the hospital basically um and i was saying so he told me this after i was saying they're here now they're here now weird as fuck so i i was completely in this white space and all i remember was these black figures like really kind of like tall black figures they just like warped almost just loads of black figures around me like just I don't know what they were or who they were or what it was or my I was just interpreting that energy that way um but I just remember that he was just saying that I kept saying they're here now they're here now they're here now he was like obviously pretty scared by that um I 
genuinely believe that like that process because I went unconscious then I don't remember anything I just came back around and I was in a hospital bed and I was like surrounded by people I don't know what happened but I think that that transition whatever happened was me I guess be, being met by my spirit guides or being met by my higher self or like I think that something very profound happened there where I remembered. So I remembered who I am, what I'm here to do. I kind of connected back to my spirit. I feel that way. Like that's because I came back in feeling very like different almost, but like still, I mean, within two weeks, I, I tried to commit suicide again, but like that's because I think that it was, I was let down by the people around me. Like I was let down by like, no one was, trying to help me still so I think that's what led me to the suicide again within two it was within three weeks I think three weeks later I was back <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in kind of what you experienced during the whole thing right I mean you, so we know like what happened on the 3d realm let's say like you're you know you're the person you're seeing at the time came got you took you to the hospital so from your recollection were you just, you said you weren't intoxicated, but you just took all these pills and then did you just pass out and then these big black figures kind of appeared just around you? Is that kind of the process? Yeah. It, I remember my, my partner at the time dragging me across the ground and all I remember was I was half unconscious and it was just white. Everything was white like a bright, like a light, you know, like a very bright light. But then there was just like these black figures like uh, around, like just appearing around. Me. Were they like, as you and were I being pulled through the hallway, the black figures were beside you? No, it was when I was being pulled like with, like into, I was on the grass. So I was being pulled into the hospital. So I was just outside the hospital. Like it was very like, you know, like I was unconscious. I was going between being outside the hospital to, you know, like tr tripping out into this white space with these black figures. Okay. And then, and then, so this happened again within a couple of weeks. Was that a very similar experience? No. So what happened was I was sent home within three days. So three days oh, later, wow. I was sent home because I was in a, a hospital bed that needed and the doctor no word of a lie the doctor said i'm sorry you can't take up this bed because you're not nothing's wrong with you nothing's physically wrong with you i'm not joke no mm. word of a lie that's what he said to my dad he was like she can't take up the space because we need it for people who have got something wrong with them and there was no space in a mental bed or anything like that so they were like you're gonna have to go home so i was sent home don't ask me why my family weren't there, like why no one took me into that. Maybe I re re rejected it. I, I can't remember, but I was, I went back into my apartment where it all happened. By yourself. And of course, I mean, yeah, by myself, by myself. I mean, people were coming to visit, in, uh, but no one was with me. Um, no one was with me. I was alone again. So it was just, a, it almost was like, oh, that's just happened and I've just gone straight back into I've just gone straight back into it. I don't know. Like, of course I'm going to do it again. Cause like, I felt so unsupported. I felt so alone. I felt like no one's hearing me. No one's hearing or seeing me like what's going on. Um, but the second time was so much more dysfunctional because I went to, um, 
I shouldn't have been drinking. I went to a Christmas party and it was an open bar and I got absolutely intoxicated, of course. But someone had actually come up to me and was like, do you know your partner's been cheating on you? And I was like, I'd already, I'd already found, yeah, I'd already found evidence um, of him on FaceTime naked to this girl that he worked with. Um, and he told me that it was like, you know, none of that was um, real, basically. Like it wasn't, he'd not done anything and we worked for a bit. Um, and someone come up to me and was like, it's, it, he has been. Um, you know, my partner's told me because he's friends and he has been cheating on you, basically. As you can imagine, my state, I'm in a very fragile state of mind. I just drunk so much more alcohol. I got so intoxicated. It was ridiculous. Like, it was bad. It was dangerous how much I got intoxicated. And then I ended up, like, like messaging this, this person. And I was like, like invited this random guy to my house, obviously trying to be, I don't know what happened, but I then um, nearly, nearly slept with this guy, luckily became quite conscious and he, um, I kicked him out and I was like, I don't want to do this, like get out. And I think then that guilt of what I just like, because then I was like, oh my God, I've just done what, I'm so upset about that he's done. And I was just obviously just a mess, you know, I was just messed up, like just not okay, not functional. And I then basically um, carried on drinking more and more. Then I took loads more tablets. So I just took loads more tablets with the alcohol then. Cause then at this point they'd prescribed me antipsychotics. They'd pre- prescribed me, they'd given me more tablets. so it was it was amazing because i was like i was like yes i've got loads more tablets (laughs) i'd carried on getting the tablets thinking this is for my next time oh my gosh (laughs) like i was idolizing it i honestly was having like a fantasy about this is what i'm going to do next um at this point i was searching how to actually make it work so then i was searching you had to make a chemical concoction you know it had to be it had to be you know different and i was putting a lot of plan into this because i was like this time i'm gonna do it (laughs) so then that all happened um yeah i bought this time i rang my cousin um and she came and got me um and then yeah i just woke up again in this hospital bed with my cousin next to me and yeah, I, it was it was crazy. Well, real it was real hard. quick, I, I, there's a quick jump there. Um, yeah. So you did you take the pills and then call your cousin, or did you call your cousin then take the pills? Yeah. No, I took the pills then called my cousin. And yeah. And so then you called your cousin, and then was like, did those dark figures show up again? Like, what what do you remember no. from the transition? I just was completely unconscious then. So but by the time she got me, I started to, you know, like w- like lose consciousness. Um, and then the next time I woke up, I was in a hospital bed. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't remember anything that happened. Then I was completely unconscious. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, what was the when you woke up in the hospital bed? What was like the process like at that point? Was it like this is the second suicide you know, plan or are we, are we going to actually yeah, this help this girl now su- yeah that was the second suicide attempt so at this point obviously people 
uh, they're a bit more i mean a psychologist came to see me and the psychologist is you know speaking to me and i remember the psychologist leaving the room i know word of a lie i tried to hang myself oh wow i tried to, i put i put a chair in front of the the thing and i tried to hang myself i couldn't get high but i just was strangling myself to the point of like you know i was like kind of losing consciousness but i was like this is not going to work and then and then i would just sit there and then i would be thinking how can i kill myself um then i left the hospital no joke i left the hospital no one knew no one knew i walked out of the hospital in my nightgown and I walked onto a road because I was going to kill myself. I was going to jump in front of a car. I, I was gone for, I'd say, about two hours. And I was walking the streets looking like a crazy person. I was in this, like, dressing gown. And I was just like, I'm going to jump in front of a car. And then I was like, no, that's selfish. Like, what about the person? I was like, I'm going to jump off a bridge. That's the way that I'm going to do it. I'm going to – and I was walking the streets thinking, this is – like no one cares about me. No one even cares that I'm gone. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Obviously, all I wanted was just to be held. I just wanted someone to just come take me and say, I hear you, I love you, I've got you, let's work through this. <laughs> but it didn't happen. Um, but the psychologist, I, I went back and the psychologist kind of was like, I don't want to put you in a mental hospital because if I put you in there, there's kind of, it's a very difficult road to recover it will be worse because you're around more people who are you know it was he obviously could see that maybe i'm going to get through this you know and maybe he he's seen a light that i didn't see because he actually was like i really don't want you to go into a hospital with a mental hospital because i just feel that will make you worse it will you'll be surrounded by people who are really mental and it, it will you'll become that you'll become that environment thank god thank god that i didn't because i don't think i would be here right now maybe i, I don't know if it'd be the, i'd be the same person that was a reality that was there and i didn't step into it thank god that's wild <laughs> and they didn't even notice that you had left the hospital for two hours no so what what got you to so in your story you were in your nightgown walking down the street you were like okay maybe i should jump out in front of a car no that's selfish i should just go and jump off a bridge what what made you pivot from the bridge to ah, i'll just go back to the hospital you know deep down i just wanted to be helped i didn't want to be unhappy just want i wanted to I wanted to believe that, like, I could be fixed. I guess in some way. I want. I deep down, my higher self, obviously, my higher self knew that it would. I could get better, you know. So there was a small glimpse of hope amongst it all. I guess there was a small glimpse of like a future. Maybe this can. Maybe someone can help me get through this. You know. Maybe I still hopeful. <laughs> and so that's i don't know how well i mean it looks like you're doing it right now yeah 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 and so i so that was kind of the epiphany i guess you had is that you just had this feeling of like okay there's not like anything wrong with me it's just that i need some sort of almost empathy or validation that like what i'm going through is what it is almost yeah yeah i just need someone to fix it fix it I just need someone to come in and tell me what's going on. <laughs> that's it. Man, that's crazy. I mean, 
guess crazy is a weird word for it, but that's <laughs> it's one of the kind. It is crazy. Yeah. It is. It's it's wild. It's a mad story, and it's like fantastic in a way because it's like led me to every. Without that story, would I be me right now? Absolutely not. I would not be Josephine. Josephine. <laughs> I wouldn't be the Josephine I am today. Like helping other people with consciousness and and just my experience. So I was. I really wanted to be a mental health advocate because I felt like it was so messed up. I felt like the whole thing was so messed up. Who better to talk um, about it? You know, like I, I actually felt so qualified. I actually, I actually though was like psychology is messed up like sorry I, it's not for everyone i don't think it like i don't want to just sound <laughs> savage here i don't know if you follow the holistic psychologist i love her i love the way that she does psychology have you heard of her um holistic no maybe no? maybe if i saw it uh, maybe you've seen her post but to me i started to see that this whole system was corrupt in a way that was like this is not supportive for people because actually i stopped taking the medication and i stopped doing all of those things and i started doing things like meditation and you know the classic story of like finding the holistic healing that's what truly heals healed me you know well that's beautiful so, so what did that journey look like because that's something that i'm kind of always fascinated about where it's like you know, I kind of have this war perception of, you know, the medical industry, I think, where I see them as more in a business to cure or no, to treat. Business, yeah, they're yeah. more of a business to treat, to treat. than to cure. Yeah. And so yeah. It, how did you kind of come to realize or how did you kind of come to process that, okay, these drugs aren't really doing it for me and that there's something that I need to go within and heal myself from within because I, Josephine, have that power. Yeah. How did you find that? Yeah. So, so I, after all that whole experience, I then, um, I was, oh, that's why I tell you what happened from that second suicide. I obviously then birthed the new Josephine was birthed to a degree. I quit my job, quit UNA, split up with my boyfriend of three years. And I booked a one-way flight to Australia. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, yeah. So within within that second time of suicide, within, I'd say, two months, I was in Australia. So obviously a higher self thing here. They actually, so I, that, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder after that, that second attempt. So I went and seen a psychiatrist, all of that. They diagnosed me with emotionally unstable personality disorder, um, which, believe it or not, they just gave me more medic medication for. <laughs> of course. I I actually refused the medication and they had somebody coming out to my house every day to make sure that I was okay. So they had like somebody, you know, like a risk assessment kind of person coming out and making sure that I was not committing suicide, basically. Um, and in that time, I was like, I'm going to go to Australia. Of course, they were like, that's very impulsive. That's a impulsivity is a trait of um, emotionally unstable personality disorder. So they was like, <laughs> oh my um, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So you can imagine. I'm like, I don't want your tablets. I'm moving to Australia. I've booked a one way flight. Everyone's like, we don't think this is a good idea. Like this is not what you just <laughs> tried to kill yourself, and now you're jumping on a plane to Australia, like on your own. Like no. 
you can imagine and my higher self is like now nah, i know myself i'm doing this i'm going to be fine this is the way and it was it was so healing for me because i just broke free from all of this construct of you know i wasn't exactly completely healed but like no one was stopping me no one was stopping me going from australia and it was so liberating i felt so much happiness so much joy that moment of being on a plane and touching down in Australia, I remember feeling so excited, so happy. I'd not felt that for so long, you know, like, and I just was like, it's probably why I'm so passionate about travel right now, but it's like, I just was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be free like this. I want to travel and be free. And I wasn't healed. I still was doing very dysfunctional things when I was in Australia, partying a lot. And I mean, that's a, I, this is a whole, surely a whole of a podcast. It's like, surely my life after this is a whole it's a whole of a podcast because from there then I started doing like sex work and I started doing like mad stuff like this being wild still doing drugs like my life was just crazy from then on but I was also like on a spiritual I'd had my awakening so I started to learn about like how I create my own reality and it was all very like intertwined and it was very like ascension from there. That's beautiful. I mean, so, yeah, it was amazing. so then were you, I guess so you weren't doing like meditating, you weren't doing any sort of, let's say spiritual work before you got to Australia. And so was there just, there was like, just like this divine feeling of one way ticket, drop everything, one way ticket Australia. You know what? I actually think it's amazing how it's so divine, all of this happening, is when I was in hospital the second time, a friend, you know, the same friend that couldn't be my friend because I was depressed, she'd left. She, she was my best friend for like years. She actually came to the hospital. I'd not seen her in years. And she came to the hospital and she gave me the secret. She just gave me the secret. It was, And I remember at the time thinking, why are you giving me a book? Like, I don't, I'm, I've just tried to kill myself. I don't care about book right now. Like, I remember thinking that. Anyway, it was divine because their secret is obviously like, taught, you know, it starts to teach you about law of attraction. So when I first started reading that book in Australia, because I didn't read it straight away, I read it and I started to read it in Australia. Instantly, it started to resonate of like, it's almost like my higher self had just placed all of these things in my path and it was all divine and aligned because then I started instantly when I read that your thoughts create your reality, it's almost like a whole activation just happened. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, whoa. I was like, oh. And then more and more I started to see how, oh, I've just created, like, I just created that depression myself to a degree i've just i've just lived i've just constructed a dark reality because of my own thoughts and feelings um so yeah absolutely wild it was <laughs> so i started to read the secret so the secret was the kind of like the the it cut the catalyst for me understanding law of attraction and i did start to meditate and be great i started to be grateful so i started to write gratitude journals and you know, little things like this. And the snowball effect kind of probably just started happening where life just started kind of getting well, better. that's it then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Things start getting better. And I, and in a way, and maybe this is kudos to you because in a way this is kind of validating everything for me because for me, I look at things at like the most extreme, like 
I truly believe if you like, you have an idea, like take it to the most extreme, see if it works either way. Right. And, and I, and I feel like that usually kind of can show you where the guardrails or where the barriers of that idea exist. Right. Um, for me, like a big one recently was like the idea of manifestation where, you know, if, if there was zero manifestation, like it wasn't a thing, then there would be no change at all whatsoever in the world. And everything would be stagnant and you would just be lying in bed 24 seven. Um, but if manifestation was instantaneous, it would be such a chaotic world where Josephine and I would never be able to have this conversation. Right. I would just be, we would be teleporting to such different locations every time we talked about it or like it came up as our thoughts. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think that's huge kudos to your story where if somebody who can be on the, well, somebody who attempted suicide, arguably three times, maybe three and a half, it depends on how you want to count it. You, and mm-hmm. you have seen this kind of stuff firsthand of that the world creates your reality. Like you're at a point now where yeah. you've, you are a rape, like a rape victim, a sexual trauma survivor, a, and I mean, I guess those are inter- interesting words in themselves, but you know, you've battled through all these things and yet you're now at a point where you're like, yeah, I, I quote unquote created all of that. Yeah, I, I legit, obviously, I probably didn't like the idea initially, but I could start to see how I'd created the depression, I'd created that construct. And I mean, we can never understand as a child why we attract these kind of things into our life, right? We never can. Maybe I was supposed to, or maybe it was the predisposition of like being into, you know, I'd come into my parents, I chose my parents, my parents have a pretty low vibrational in a way, they live it, so it's like I'm kind of like naturally going to experience what they're experiencing. Um, so it's like the dog, don't start. You heard it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I heard Should it. Should we get in yeah, yeah. Um, it's all right. I actually needed to plug the charger in as well. It's like, oh, <laughs> um, oh we were I heard a little so bit. Well. I was like, oh, no, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> um, oh. no, but it, I guess it's like the light, the light feels like it's entered back in. Um, yeah. So I, I, as I started going on this journey, more and more things were happening where I was being faced with myself. So a lot of self-awareness was starting, like a lot of things were starting to like reflect, I guess, back to me. And I had to sit, like, I guess I had to like just learn about myself in such a big way. Um, It's crazy how quickly that went actually. But one of really kind of like momental times I remember was I was very still victim mentality, you know, victim consciousness. And and I, I was entitled, like very entitled as fuck. Like I thought that the whole world owed me something. So I was surrounded by a lot of people who'd not experienced anything along the lines of what I'd experienced. And as you can imagine, when I'm partying with them and stuff, they would drink, it would be cool, it would be chill. I would drink, I'd start expressing all of this deep, dark stuff that I've still kind of got within my psyche you know and I would be a mess emotionally a mess and people would just be like you know that's a bit much Joe like so these things were still happening you know like I would binge drink and I would you know I'd be trying to express myself through the through the alcohol Um, and it got to a point where then I was like why are my friends not asking me how I am why are my friends not checking in on me every single day? And, you know, I was living with these people and I actually 
had a bit of a shock to my reality because every single friend, and I needed it clearly, sat me down separately and was like, look, you're very self-absorbed. Like you're just stuck in your own head. You're not, you don't care about us. You don't care about like what what's going on. Like you just think that we're we're here to serve you in a way, like that that because you've had a bad life, that you know, it's that entitlement feeling. Um and I was just like, that's actually when a book came into my life, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. One of the best books ever for self-awareness. Absolutely love it. I tell everybody to read it. And it was, he talks about, you know, people who have bad stuff happen to them. They think that, like, it's then everybody else's problem. And I remember just that that whole, I was like, oh, like, I'm actually the problem here. <laughs> like, I, it was just, it was experience after experience where it's like, I'm the issue. I'm the issue. Like, not an issue, but, like, I'm the one that's, creating like, if you don't like this, yeah, I'm creating this. Yeah, in a in a way, yeah, I'm creating this. And more and more was happening where it was like I had to be responsible for that. Um, so yeah, I, I really kind of went on obviously there's so much that happens, you know, in that it's like you can't just explain that that all of that progression in, in a conversation, but there were so many layers to it. Um and I really kind of transcended so many layers um in a really kind of transformative way you know I was I was very real with myself and when I started to be honest with myself I was like okay self-awareness is like the best thing like if I can be really self-aware I'm gonna get through life pretty well and I started to really practice that um so I think it's the best practice that anybody could do is being very self-aware um because then you start to create much better circumstances like I live my dream life and I'm like oh it's actually amazing how I've gone from like this to this, you know. Right. It's like whoa, right. <laughs> because of because of that knowing. I mean, you know, if there's anyone that has really changed their life, let's say from, uh, if you could argue from hell to heaven, you know, I think it's you. <laughs> and I think that's why I so passionately want to be of service and help people because i'm like i know for a fact anybody can transform like i know it because i've done it it's not like i'm just giving you some textbook thing like i'm not i'm not just saying this because like it sounds cool i've done it you've lived it i've done the process i've lived it i've gone through the journey and i've been suicidal i've tried to kill myself and now i'm living in pure bliss like go figure it's possible for every single person you know, I love just it. got a jumper timeline. <laughs> it's like it's there. Just a quick little timeline shift. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Easy as. <laughs> I, I think that that's a beautiful, and I think it's the perfect way to wrap this up. It it really is. I think it's, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It is. Is, there, I is there anything that you want to, I'll, I'll give you the floor for a bit. I'll throw your information in the description below, but is there... Yeah. Anything you want to encourage people to do? Any words of advice? Any anything you want to plug? I, yeah, like if there's something you don't like about your reality, go inwards. If it's relationships, if it's if if something doesn't reflect in your reality that you enjoy or love or like, then it's something internal. Like always, there is literally nothing that you're not creating. You're creating every every cell and atom is being created by your 
by you and how you're feeling about the world and your perceptions of the world. So, yeah, just um, if you want to create a, a heaven on earth, your heaven on earth, just just be intentional about everything that you're doing and and create it because you can. Beautiful words. That's what I want to say. Josephine, yeah. thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Appreciate you sharing your story with the conscious monkeys and <laughs> I'm glad we finally got it. Uh got it all out. <laughs> uh, I hope it helps. I hope it helps people. I really do. Yeah. I, I it helped me at, at the very least. It helped me see some things in a different light. And so yeah, I mean, take that for what it's worth. But yeah, a couple more people, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. We have to do another one now, Clayton, about like just being conscious. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> now, yeah. <laughs> we got a whole thing coming after this. <laughs> yeah, we've got a whole thing. A sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for holding space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... And being patient. Being patient. <laughs> it's been a big one. <laughs> it's been it's been big. Yeah, really grateful. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you. I Yeah, holding space is huge. I mean, it's hard... I guess it's hard to do nowadays, but I, anyone can do that as well. I know. Um, yeah. So yeah. So thank you, Josephine, again, conscious monkeys. If you want to get in contact with Josephine, ask her any questions links in the links below. So go check her out. If you made it through, I mean, you know, pat yourself on the back. Cause that was a deep, that was a deep conversation. <laughs> yourself, you're patting yourself. Uh, oh my gosh. But yeah. I, everyone should be patting themselves on the back. <laughs> Um, we made, we it. made it. With that being said, if you guys have listened to all this. Thank you. I know it was a little chaotic, but I think that's kind of where the beauty lies. And you know, if not everything's perfect, so take that for what it is. Josephine, thanks again. Conscious monkeys, go check her out. Um, in the links below, I have nothing to add. That I Josephine wrapped it up perfectly. Um, with that being said, conscious monkeys, let's grow together.